Welcome to another episode of the Spoon Mob Podcast. This week I am joined by Chef Derek Wilcox, who is the executive chef at Amari in Los Angeles, California. Chef Derek actually started at Amari as the CDC and Chef David Schlosser, who is the owner and chef of Shibumi, which is also in LA, was the executive chef there when the restaurant first opened. David has since gone back to focusing on Shibumi, and now Derek is the executive chef. And also, Amari will soon be changing the name of their restaurant too as well. So Derek kind of goes on all this stuff on the podcast uh, once we get to that section, but it kind of explains um, the origins of the opportunity and how everything's progressed and, and what they're doing and that stuff too. So but I first learned about Chef Derek Wilcox through the Eater series Omakase, which is focused. It's like 10 to 15, maybe 20 minutes at most. Uh, they focus on a sushi chef. It's a YouTube series. You can find them. There's like probably 60 some episodes now. And they're all kind of clumped together. So, you know, like the first 10 are all like in uh, Japan and then like the next five are in uh, Hawaii or something like that. So, um, but Derek has an episode on there that he filmed. Uh, it was when he was at 69 Leonard Street, which is a famous sushi restaurant in New York City. It's kind of one of 10 that does Edomai-style sushi, essentially. So you have them, Sushi Ginza, Odanera, and a handful of others, too, as well in New York, which is kind of like this sushi capital of America and, you know, almost kind of, in a way, you know, the world. Not It's not doesn't hold up to, you know, Tokyo standards, obviously, with the amount of sushi restaurants that you can find in Tokyo. But... Outside of Japan, you know, New York City is one of the most prevalent places to find high-quality sushi, and a lot of the restaurants fly their stuff in. From the Tonsuku Market, um, which replaced Chizigi Market uh, like a year or two ago, but that's over in Tokyo, Big Fish Market, Tuna Auctions, you've kind of probably seen photos or quick videos or something like that. But that's where I first learned about Derek, and then... You know, the striking thing about him in this YouTube series was that all the other episodes pretty much have translation over it. So they have kind of subtitles. Um, most of the chefs are speaking Japanese or another, you know, native language. If for some reason, you know, it's a sushi restaurant in China or something like that, where Derek is like the only American like white dude like practically in the entire series and it's like 60 some episodes at this point and it's just like whoa like what's going on here and they go into you know his origins a little bit and everything like that too but I was just super fascinated and it was a restaurant I always wanted to eat at and he actually wound up leaving um, the restaurant after a couple years and wound up out in LA and uh, you know so I still haven't had the pleasure yet of eating any of the food that he's cooked but it all looks amazing he's got an amazing story and I just wanted to see if, you know, he'd be willing to come on the podcast and talk sushi because it's one of my favorite things to eat. And there's not a whole lot of people I can have on podcasts that are, you know, have a serious background in sushi just because of the language barrier. Because I don't, I'm not fluent in Japanese. Still kind of tinkering with the idea of maybe if we can find a translator, maybe there's a way we can do, you know, a few more episodes or something like that with some sushi chefs or, you know, chefs that are in Japan um, or something like that. And, aren't fluent in English or anything like that. So that's still an idea I'm kicking around, but you know, Derek kind of gave me the opportunity. He's like, oh, okay, there's somebody I can reach out to. So I reached out to him and he was like, yeah, I'm down to do it. And we recorded this over like two days. Uh, we ran way over time on the first day and he had to get to the restaurant and handle some stuff. So uh, we jumped back on the microphones uh, a couple days later and finished up and then wound up spending like another hour <laughs> talking. So it's just an awesome episode. I'm super happy that I was able to chat with Derek and he was willing to come on the podcast and talk about his career. You know, he's cooked in Japan for like 10 years. 
just dedicated so much of his time to being over there in his life and eventually, you know, found success here in New York and is now finding more success in LA. And it's, he's an amazing chef, super thoughtful, super mindful, really knowledgeable about so many things, not just, you know, Japanese cuisine and everything that he's cooked, but just the inner workings of each kind of restaurant scene and place that he's worked, you know, how New York is different from LA and everything. And we touch on all this stuff in this episode. So it's a fascinating episode. It's a fascinating conversation. It was just great to be able to to get Derek on the podcast, you know, definitely kind of one of those dream guest scenarios. So you can follow him on Instagram. Uh, he's not super, super active, but he's on there at Chef Derek Wilcox, just like it's spelled. You can also follow the restaurant to it's at imari.la right now is still the handle. Now that's going to be changing. They did post uh, maybe like, I think it was like August 22nd that they would be announcing that their new name, uh, Derek actually announces a new name in this podcast anyway. So they haven't put up a post up with the new name. So once that comes out, there'll be a different handle. They'll probably just change the name of the existing handle, I would imagine. So if you follow Amari LA, it should switch over to the new restaurant name once they change it. But if not, I'm sure they'll put a post out on the Amari LA handle to kind of redirect everybody to the new Instagram account if that's the scenario that they go down. So it just kind of depends on if that name's already taken, if you put like .LA or whatever. Uh, sometimes that gets too complicated and you want some kind of streamlined for marketing purposes and all that stuff and branding and whatnot. So um, yeah, just follow them, uh, those accounts right now. But uh, without any further delay, here's my conversation with Chef Derek Wilcox, the executive chef over at Amari. Thanks again for you know agreeing to come on and, and do this and take some time out of your morning. I know you're a busy guy with the restaurant out there and everything. You know, I kind of first learned about you through YouTube, through the Eater episode that you did, which I want to get to eventually, but that was kind of going through all the omakase episodes that they did. And you were one of the few that didn't have all the translations underneath because obviously... <laughs> American and English and everything, where a lot of those guys are from Japan and stuff and not exactly completely fluent in, in English, or they're just more comfortable, you know, kind of speaking in their, their native language. You know, I want to get to everything kind of you're doing now, how you wound up in LA, but I always like to start at the beginning uh, with everybody. So going back to kind of the early days of your career, I mean, you know, how did you first kind of get involved with cooking? And, you know, you're originally, I think, from upstate New York, or you're born in upstate New York, but grew up in kind of Northern Virginia, right? So how did you first, you know, get involved with cooking? Was it just job in high school? Family was kind of always involved with it. It mostly actually came from uh, running out of money in college, uh, not being able to afford the, uh, the, you know, the room and board. Getting a really crappy apartment above a bar in a small town in Ohio, and cooking basically like fried rice and Salisbury steak, which were like the cheapest things that were nutritious enough for. Uh, young guy, but I didn't come from like a professional cooking background. You know, my my mom's a great cook, of course, but as as most moms are. But yeah, I didn't really just get into like cooking for other people. Started with friends coming over, and then you know went into like dinner parties, and then went into like you know I really should have just done this from the beginning, and uh, ended up going to cooking school, kind of in my mid to late twenties. I guess not everybody who does that ends up sticking with it professionally, but turns out that it was the right thing for me to do. Have stuck with it professionally, so it's been, you know, a good seventeen years, eighteen years since then. So, what college in Ohio? Uh, it's called Ohio Wesleyan, uh, in a town called Delaware, north of Columbus. When you're going to college in Ohio here, and probably at that time Delaware is a little bit more built up, probably than than when you were there. 
what was your intended career path originally, like when you're going to college? Yeah, I wasn't entirely sure what I wanted to do. Um, I went to college uh, actually as a physics major, just just out of interest, you know, ended up not really working out for me. I wasn't very good at it. And I switched to computer science, which was my, my you know, my dad had worked for IBM. That was kind of the family business, I guess you could say. My brother did that. My brother-in-law does that. Yeah, I was just sort of kind of following in those footsteps. I didn't hate it. I, I mean, it's it's interesting and and certainly uh, rewarding financially work. Didn't really uh, didn't really float my boat. Yeah, like I said, I ended up uh, thinking like I, I probably should have just you know gone into cooking from the very beginning and just didn't even know that about myself. But so when you decide to go to the CIA Culinary Institute of America out in New York and Hyde Park, there, why did you select them? Did you look at other cooking schools, or was it just that was the big one, or? I did. I looked at a lot. This was kind of at the time when uh, cooking schools were sort of becoming more commercialized, I guess. You know, in the case of CIA started as, um, you know, for people coming back on the GI Bill. This was right after the California Culinary Academy in uh, San Francisco was bought by Le Cordon Bleu. And uh, a bunch of the teachers left. And and I was kind of looking around and I, you know, I wanted to kind of get my money's worth. It was just going to be expensive no matter what. And I had to think, like, do, I, do I even really want to do this? Like, do it? Should I just go work somewhere? And I guess because of the where I was coming from, I thought, no, I'll, I'll go cooking school. And like I said, that, that choice doesn't work out for a lot of people. They don't end up sticking with it because it doesn't really expose them to what it's like uh, as an actual professional in a commercial kitchen. It prepares you in some ways, but not in other ways. Yeah, like I said, it ended up being exactly the right thing for me. I made really good connections there. And I, I guess I picked the CIA because it had the best facilities and it was not... Like I said, they were all expensive. I'm sure it's even more now, but they're all expensive. So I just thought, okay, if it's going to be expensive, I might as well try to make the best choice I can. So yeah, I, I visited several schools. I thought about it for a little while and ended up picking the CIA. Someone in your kitchen who's passionate about becoming a chef, you know, they come up to you and they're like, I really want to be a professional chef. I want to run, you know, and own my own restaurant one day. Do you think I should go to cooking school? What would you tell them? I would say if you want to be a like an executive chef in any large organization, like a hotel, uh, I would say yes, absolutely. I think you need a breadth of kind of exposure that cooking school gives you. You need the wine education. You need the management education. You need the... Another thing about cooking school is you end up being trained by dozens of chefs in a fairly short amount of time. And each of these chefs have come from the industry and they all bring their own kind of uh, preconceptions, like the habits that they picked up, uh, their leadership habits that they picked up. So you get exposed to different leadership styles, you know, every time you change a class, really, which can be great, you know, as opposed to working for one restaurant for three years or five years or something where you pretty much only exposed to one leadership style. So cooking school has a lot of great qualities in that sense. And it's, I would say... You know, if you want to be in a large team, if you want to work in a large organization, cooking school is 100% a good thing. If you just want like your own little restaurant with like eight seats or something, and then it's more of a toss up. And I would say if you come from a cooking background and you have lots of connections already in the industry, it's not as valuable as it would be to somebody who's not coming from a cooking background and, and doesn't have the connections in the industry. Uh, I've met lots of successful people that did go to cooking school and would recommend it. And I've met lots of successful people who didn't go to cooking school and would not recommend it. And it doesn't guarantee anything. Uh, and it's very expensive. And if you're just prepared to kind of swallow the expense and get as much value out of it as you can, then then I think it's it's a good idea. 
So what happens after you graduate from the CIA? Because that's kind of, most of your career kind of gets picked up in the press, like once, you know, you're over in Japan, but fill me in on the time between after culinary school, but before you decide to go over to Japan. So I already decided to go to Japan while I was still in culinary school. I didn't decide to go there for 10 years, but I did want to go for about two to three years, get as much exposure as I could. And I wanted to do Japanese cuisine specifically. I was uh, just very deeply inspired by an experience I had stodging in Kyoto uh, for a month at uh, a kapo style kaiseki restaurant. Just the, the staff there, the head chef's wife was English, so he spoke a little English. And the staff there was just very, I mean, they were all very hardworking. It was not a pleasant environment for anybody, but they all found time to just be very supportive. And, and then, you know, I got a free meal at the end of a month of staging there. And this meal was like everything that the generation I was in, our big heroes were the, the French American tasting menu guys, Thomas Keller, the guys that he trained and et cetera. It turns out that all of that, all of Nouvelle Cuisine arose out of the French kind of being fascinated with the Japanese, uh, which actually goes back 130 years now uh, to the certain um, World's Fairs in the late 19th century in Paris where the Japanese came and had a pavilion. And it influenced all of French arts, uh, including cooking. Basically everything that happened in French food since like Escoffier and, and the Ruthic and sauces not everything, but a lot of it can be traced to the influence of the Japanese. And to just go experience that in its original form, you know, people who've been doing farm to table, who've been doing tasting menus, who've been doing highly seasonal aesthetic for a thousand years, 1300 years, maybe continuously. It's just, it's a, it was a completely different experience. And it, it, it really floored me. You know, this happened when I was doing my internships. This is between my first and second year at the CIA. So I kind of knew when I went back for my second year that I've, I've got to get back here and just try to experience this more and learn about as much as I can because it was so enticing. So then you ultimately wind up joining Kikunoi, which is in Kyoto there. Was that the place that you definitely wanted to work at or was it one of a short list? The place that I'd staged at that month was Kikunoi's uh, second location in Kyoto. They had a Maybe I think it was in the in the 90s they built the second location with a counter. You know this kind of restaurant traditionally in Japan is just all private rooms. It's a somewhat more modern and urban way of doing it to build a counter and then to have the chef behind the counter and cooking for the guests. So this was their this second location was trying to be a little more modern than uh, than their original. So that's where I had my first experience and then uh, you know I, I really wanted to get a job there and they ended up uh, putting me in the main location so that I would be more exposed to like the different chefs coming through. They wanted somebody who was a English speaker to help them with the media that was showing up there increasingly. And so I think they had kind of an ulterior motive for putting me in the main branch. Uh, I was okay with it because the main branch is also at that time, it's gotten a little bit more normal now, but at that time it was absolutely insane in terms of busyness, in terms of the number of things that they got involved with and the hours that we were working. I end up being exposed to a lot more there than I would have. Kikanoi, isn't it like pretty infamous, I think, for being large kind of grueling kitchen? I mean, I think you guys are doing like 16 hour days, 100, 150 covers a night, something like that. It's a bit more than 16. 18? It's a little more than 18. 
<laughs> so it does ebb and flow. In your first year, you're never working less than 19 or 20 hours in a day. Now that's changed a bit. They've, they've, you know, they were going through a transition while I was there. You know, the, the Michelin guy was about to come out. So when I first started working there, it was, you know, during the really busy tourist seasons in Kyoto, which is the cherry blossom season in April and the autumn leaves season in November, you're crazy busy. And then you can step back a little bit, uh, get a little bit more rest, like in January and in August and things like that. But it was in my, I don't know, second or third year, the Michelin Guide came out, they got three stars. It didn't happen right away, but it got to the point where they were just busy all year. And so their old way of doing things was just not going to work anymore. And they also kind of realized that, uh, I think when I first got there, their whole plan basically going back, again, this is this is not necessarily the chef's plan. This is just centuries of tradition in of, of hospitality in Kyoto. You know, you have a, a bunch of people, you know, often just desperate kids, like their parents sell them or something like that, into this shop. You just work them until they quit. Uh, it's, it's like a weeder program. And then the ones that stick around are going to be, you know, the ones you can really rely upon. And I think there was a, just a little bit of a change in philosophy, certainly at Kikanoi while I was there, where they kind of realized like, you know, actually looking at another perspective, they gave me to look at it more, almost more of a Western perspective where it's like, you know, it actually costs us time and energy to train people. So if half of our hires quit in the first two weeks and half of the re remaining ones quit in the first year, how much time and effort are we wasting training people? And so they, they changed a few things. They let people actually take days off. Like when I, when I first started on your day off, you usually still had to work. Um, the restaurant was open every single day and there was almost always some special event and usually at least had to come in in the morning and help out. They kind of changed that. Like when I first started, they weren't doing any kind of special trips or anything like that. And they kind of got into it again. So they, they started taking their employees kind of emotional and physical health they, they took our physical health very seriously. They, you know, we got preventive medicine, we got health insurance. And if we had any problems, they were like, you got to go, you got to go to the doctor right now. You know, you got to get that taken care of because otherwise you can't work. So they did take our physical health very seriously, but not, not mental or, or emotional. And I think that was changing very slowly while I was there. And I think it, the, the change sort of picked up after I left. And I think a lot of the top restaurants in Japan are kind of looking at that now. The other big problem was that young Japanese people, even the, one, the ones who did want to go into cooking, none of them wanted to go into Japanese cuisine because it was just so famously uh, hellish compared to, you know, you can go work at a French restaurant in Japan. You can be doing world-class food. You can go get Michelin stars. You know, you have prestige. And yeah, you're working yeah, maybe 16 hours a day with like a break. You're not working 20 hours a day. You know, it's not like, so I think, I think Kaiseki had to sort of, they also realized that they were competing now with French cuisine and Italian cuisine for the most talented young and ambitious young chefs in Japan. You know, people who graduated cooking school are like, okay, what do I want to do? I can work at a Kaiseki restaurant. I can work 110 hours a week. I can make 800 bucks a month or... Uh, I can work at a French restaurant, I can work 90 hours a week, and I can, you know, make a lot more money, maybe even have a girlfriend, you know, which is never going to happen in a million years if I'm at a Kaiseki restaurant. So all these young Japanese, uh, ambitious Japanese cooks were making different decisions. Um, speaking of girlfriends, uh, women were also a big issue. There's more young Japanese women entering the workforce on the cuisine side, and pretty much none of them were going into Kaiseki 
which is still kind of the case. Yeah, the, the people who really were kind of at the top of the field and were not having to try to survive day to day, but looking at the future, like what's traditional Japanese cuisine going to look like in 10 years, in 20 years? They were, they were starting to get scared. They were like, this is not this is not going in a good direction. And I think they they basically realized, and, and Kikinoi was kind of at the forefront of this, I think, you know, we have to change the culture a little bit. We have to change the work culture a little bit. You know, this isn't going to be like one of the best restaurants in the world just because our work culture is causing people to quit so much that we just can't even. So they were changing slowly. You know, from my understanding, you know, in Japan, you know, the eldest son, the oldest son, he's kind of in line to take over the family business, right? So if there's a second son, he's kind of a little bit more free spirited. You know, it's kind of like, are you going to get that kind of second son who is also like dedicated to being in a restaurant? You know, kind of like you're saying, like at some point, you know, they kind of want to go off, do their own thing. A lot of them kind of go overseas, you know, different countries and stuff like that. So I wonder how much that kind of plays into it too, a little bit. When you're talking about like young Japanese people and, and how they're looking at their careers, what I found is that you had, yes, you had like second sons who were in it kind of as exploration. Like they weren't really sure, you know, their elder brother was carrying on with a family business or, you know, doing something more, uh, you know, like they joined the, the self-defense force or, you know, something like that. And then the second son would be like, okay, I need something else. And so there were people like that, but there are also a lot of, um, there are a lot of children of chefs in that kind of environment. Uh, I mean, there's, there's a lot of first sons too. And then as far as like the, the chefs themselves, it's often the second son who becomes the most innovative, founds a second restaurant that can often be in rivalry with the original restaurant that the first son inherited. But often the second son is, you know, if, if, if the second son is particularly brilliant or innovative in cuisine, a lot of the advancement, because, you know, Kyoto Kaiseki can be very uh, conservative and a lot of the advancement, not in terms of incorporating fusion or anything like that, but a lot of the advancement in terms of, you know, within that aesthetic, seeking out further truth in terms of expressing ingredients and, you know, maintaining traditional techniques, finding more efficient ways of still doing these traditional techniques. It was often the restaurants of like smaller restaurants that the second son would found that would have some of the most brilliant stuff going on. And certainly those of us who were in, in cuisine there, we were usually fascinated with those restaurants. You know, we'd go places like uh, Tankuma Kitamise, Shojiki Nakahingashi. So Tankuma is a famous restaurant. Second son goes and founds Tankuma Kitamise. I mean, the guy's a genius. He's doing amazing things. Uh, Miyamaso is a famous Michelin three-star rustic everything within like 80 miles of the restaurant kind of place second son goes and founds sojiki nagahingashi uh which maintains its same rustic style but a little more you know he doesn't have to maintain expectations of the family so he can kind of establish his own aesthetic so so there's there's a lot of this in kyoto uh, at the chef level uh, it's interesting that you bring that up because that's i don't think i've ever been asked that question before yeah <laughs> in any kind of interview but it's there's actually a lot of interesting, like it's kind of trenchant. There's a lot of there's a lot of stuff there to kind of sink your teeth into as to how that how that influences the course of like Japanese cuisine and Japanese culture. You don't know any Japanese, right? When you're over there working, like you might know a little bit here or there, like kitchen Japanese, like they talk about, like you know here kitchen Spanish and stuff. But you're not fluent by any means, right? When I went, I had you know back when CDs were a thing, I would listen to CDs of you know conversational Japanese and kind of picked up a little that way. So when I went, that was kind of my level. And really, it was kind of jumping in the deep end. The only alternative would have been to go to an immersive language school in Japan, which would have been a great idea if I had the time and money for it, but I just didn't. So I had to kind of just jump in and 
spend what little extra free time I had studying as much as I could to try to catch up. And yeah, the first three years over there, I, I missed a lot because I just didn't understand until I really got kind of fluent. And then, uh, you know, I was I started to get a lot more out of it at that point. It was just the way I had to do it with, with my circumstance. I couldn't, I couldn't really go to language school there. So being the white guy in the kitchen, were you treated differently at all? Were you like the outcast, you know, because you're probably one or, you know, the only American guy in the kitchen? I would say different ways by different people. First of all, it's not as bad as a lot of people. Like you read a lot about, you know, going to Japan. It's not as bad as a lot of people say, you know, Japan is actually closer to being a meritocracy than the U.S. is. Uh, they really respect hard work. I did have to, probably the hardest thing is to just learn the the hierarchy system, like the body language. And there's certain inflections of language that they'll kind of let you get away with, but you're just going to rub people the wrong way if you don't, you know, we have this in the West, well, in America, certainly we have this, uh, you know, everybody's kind of equal. We respect each other. You know, I was in the kitchen, you've got the chef, sous chefs, you know, you, there's a certain deference there. Uh, and of course, you know, in the military too, at the end of the day, everybody's the same. In Japan, there is no like end of the day. You go out drinking with your coworkers. It, it doesn't, that doesn't go away. Like you're always in this kind of, you want to be positive about it. You can say mentor mentee relationship with pretty much everybody. You know, everyone's either a mentor or a mentee. You know, obviously, as it, it kind of works both ways, too. You need to learn how to be kind of deferential. It's different from being respectful. Respectful is different. You, know, you have to learn how to be deferential. But you also have to learn how to be kind of arrogant. Because you have to be deferential to other people, there's also people who have to be deferential to you. And they're expecting you to behave a certain way. So you can't have a productive work relationship with somebody who's above you, especially in public, uh, especially if they're not super sophisticated, if you're not appropriately deferential to them. But by the same token, you can't have a, a good working relationship with somebody who's below you if you don't do the right kind of vocal inflections and body language that we would consider to be very arrogant, you know, that we just don't do with people anymore under any circumstances. But in Japan, you kind of have to learn, you have to find that part of yourself that's been dormant for generations or whatever and, and express it in a way that's not toxic so that you can actually, especially as you get, as, you, as you're there longer and you get into leadership positions, you know, they'll be like, what's wrong with this guy? If you're not, you know, you can't be that like nice guy, like West Coast tech entrepreneur, CEO type like, that doesn't fly there. You, you really have to find this sort of kind of full metal jacket uh, drill instructor voice within you and then just try to keep that from getting too like off leash. I was just going to say, it sounds like probably something you have to find like this almost militaristic, like. I don't want to say like alpha male type thing, but it's it's a little less than that, a little turned down than that. But I, I kind of get what you're saying. Well, I say somehow it's not toxic. Maybe it is in ways that I I couldn't see. And like I said, women are still a big problem. Women in the kitchen are still a big problem. You know, that kind of approach makes it difficult to deal with, you know, gender differences. So maybe that's part of the problem. And maybe that's something that will have to change to some extent before, you know, the gender problems can be addressed. I'm, I'm not sure. Once you kind of adapt to it and once you sort of look at it from within instead of from outside, it's just another way of doing things. It's not like inherently, I don't think it's inherently toxic. You worked there for seven years or just under seven years. Why so long? Actually, that's not very long. 
That's long in terms of restaurant standards in America, at least. That's the thing. Seven years, it was actually somewhat abbreviated. Like, I, I was kind of like, you know, I, I should probably stay, but I, I've got to move on. Like, I, I, in Japan, both kaiseki and sushi, it's usually 12, 13 years before you would get a sniff at something like a sous chef position. Usually for the same restaurant. In, in kaiseki, almost certainly for the same restaurant. In sushi, there's a little bit more mobility. So yeah, seven years was enough to kind of make all the rounds, like sort of touch every station at least. If you're very talented, you could actually work every station in seven years. There were, there were cooks that did that, but I was just either not talented enough or just too far behind to, to make that happen. But I was able to like touch every station. So, so in, in Japan, there's a, there's a, a lot of restaurants have a, I guess what they call the armpit system. That's the literal translation where you become a line cook's armpit. So someone who's like a chef de partie who's in charge of a certain, like the grill station, um, you basically become their armpit and you just do all their tasks for them up to the point where if they're out sick or something, you can actually work the station. There were some stations that I was the head that I rotated to as the head and uh, I had I had my own armpit <laughs> or two, but uh, there were other stations that uh, I was the armpit basically. So um, in seven years, I was able to either be the primary guy or the armpit in every station. So that that got me the and once I kind of hit that point, I was like, okay, I I have to move on. Like I, I can't you know I can't just stay here like thirteen years. Like I I have to move on. Is it fair to define kaiseki? cuisine as a sequence of courses with precise seasonality or how would you define kaiseki cuisine it's really hard to define it's one of those you know it when you see it kind of things i can tell you what it's not it's not a lot of people say oh it's japanese small plates it's not almost all japanese food is small plates so saying it's japanese small plates doesn't define anything it is a course menu uh and like i said earlier it seems to be the ancestor of the French degustation menu. So the French came up with the degustation in response to looking at Kaisek and saying, oh, hey, let's try something like that within French cuisine. So having like small one to four bite dishes and just, just a sequence of that uh, in, and individually plated for the most part. Some, some Kaiseki courses can be family style, but the, it's usually then split into individual bowls, if that makes sense. So you, you always have your own, uh, you know, one part of Kaiseki is you've got your own little place in front of you that, you know, almost everything happens in. Very seasonal, you know, at least monthly. I mean, Kaiseki just expresses what the Japanese consider important in terms of uh, aesthetics. So uh, like a lot of luxury experiences, uh, it's designed to enjoy, but it's also designed to show off. The Japanese just going back as far as anyone has records or, or any kind of history at all have uh, a love for connecting with nature through artificial, you know, man-made, you know, like a, like a garden shouldn't be this geometrical exercise where you dominate nature and force it into straight lines. A garden should be where you coax nature into a form that you like, but it still blends in with nature, if that makes sense. And that, that applies to the cuisine as well. You, you don't serve it on a white plate because white plate puts the food on a pedestal. It separates the food from its environment. So you put it on a plate that, and the plate changes seasonally as well. And the plate is carefully chosen for its connection to both the food, but also to the wider context. There's a fleeting quality. There's no signature dish. 
Oh, what are you guys known for? Oh, no, you don't have, you're, you're known for not having anything. You're known for constantly moving on, like falling cherry petals. Cherry is the best tree, not just because it's beautiful, but because it's fleeting. It's there for two weeks and then it's gone. So the best things are fleeting. You're not trying to establish permanence. So those are all things that go into Kaiseki and impressing your guests with that kind of thing. And yeah, like I said, it's harder to find. It's easier to say, okay, this this looks like Kaiseki. This maybe this moves it away from Kaiseki, you know. I have not yet seen, nor have I come up with myself, a good actual definition of Kaiseki. You know, you can take a moment and look at the history, you can look at the aesthetics, you can look at the cultural context, uh, you can look at its influence on other cuisines, but it's hard to like have even like a four-sentence definition. It's I think it's very difficult. So then after you leave. Kikunoi, you go to more of Asu meets for a little bit, right? I know I wanted to do sushi in Tokyo before I went back to America. I had this opportunity to, basically, uh, my, my wife had these books that were published by this guy, Moriasu, that was uh, one of the few books that had been written as to how you do retail butchery in Japan. You know, if you're, if you're a professional butcher at a retail butcher shop, what are all the things that you have to do? What are all the things you have to know? And this guy had written a two-volume set of, of that, you know, with illustrations, with pictures. A pretty incredible book, honestly, in Japanese. But it's like, you know, I should really steep myself a little more in Wagyu before I come back, too. You know, it's something that we used a little bit in Kaiseki. You don't use it traditionally in Kaiseki. In Kaiseki, you don't traditionally use any four-legged uh, animals. But, you know, it's not a rule. And, you know, you can incorporate a little bit of it, certainly. So I wanted to get exposed a little more. So ended up contacting him and he ended up uh, saying, okay, why don't you come work for me for like about a month or so. I'll put you with my most trusted lieutenant. I'll ask him to show you as much as, as much as you can learn in a month. He took me to the, there's a, there's a Wagyu trade school uh, in Guma prefecture. You can get like a two year degree in Japanese beef. Uh, he took me to the central, all the, all the slaughtering, the, all the abattoirs in Japan are, are government run. They don't have private abattoirs and they're heavily regulated. So he took me to the central Tokyo one and you know, I saw the grading. I wasn't allowed to actually go to the slaughterhouse floor where they do actually the slaughtering and, and the sawing in half. Um, but I could see everything after the sawing in half, you know, the, the, the actual slaughter floor is extremely extreme. Like it's like Fort Knox, like there's, you know, it's very tightly controlled and, and no, not, not even like a, you know, I'm not a tourist obviously, but you know, not, not even that would be allowed. So after you get the sides basically, and they're hanging from the ceiling, then there's the inspection, then there's the auction. Uh, the, the wholesalers have us have a, essentially a booth in the slaughterhouse facility. The whole thing is connected by tracks in the ceiling uh, and chains that the sides are hanging from. So once it's slaughtered and put on a hook and on a chain and in the track in the ceiling, um, once you have that side ready to go, Everything goes goes by just dragging it around the whole facility by that ceiling chain. So the inspection, the auction, bringing it into the uh, wholesalers booth where they can bone it out because the boning out is also done centrally. Retail butchers in Japan generally don't deal with bones. Uh, it's 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 regulatory, so they're not getting like a bone in primal. They're getting you don't get like a round. You get like the it's not quite divided the same way, but as you can see, the top round and the bottom round, you know, you get, you get it, you get kind of subprimals that are lifted off of the bones and then you're getting, you're getting that. 
uh, as a retail butcher in Japan. But so then I kind of saw everything up to that point. So it, it was it was a really great experience, and you know, getting to handle all the way up to Matsuzaka beef, which is kind of the most expensive and most kind of highly rated, I guess you could say. I'm not going to say it's the best, but so yeah, I did that, and and then I went to do uh, sushi with handling meat like that, like this revered wagyu and everything, like especially over here in the states. You know, it's kind of revered. You nervous at all at any point, like, or you just like it's just another day with everything. There's they're, they're very clever about splitting it into levels of levels of ingredients. So when you start working at Kikinoi, for example, you're not touching wild Thai. So Thai is you know sought after. It's kind of respected in Tokyo, but it's especially respected in Kyoto. The best Thai never goes to Tokyo. Uh, it's entirely consumed in Kyoto and Osaka. Uh, you know, a restaurant like Kikinoi has kind of the best of the best Thai. It's one of the things they're most known for within Japan. You know, outside of Japan, they're known for kind of reaching out international, you know, Chef Red Zeppi of Noma, uh, stage there. But, you know, like that kind of thing is what they're known for outside of Japan. But within Japan, among Japanese gourmets, they're known for having kind of the best Thai. You know, guests go there, they want the Thai. I guess that would be the closest thing to a signature dish that they have. I wasn't allowed to touch that wild Thai from Akashi, which is kind of the best place for Thai. I wasn't allowed to touch that until like my fourth year there, I'd say. So they also have like farm-raised Thai. So that's, that's, so one of the first things you do there is you start learning how to clean farm-raised Thai. You don't even touch the, the wild Thai from Akash until you've basically practiced essentially. In Wagyu, it's the same way. So everything that in America we call Wagyu, like American Wagyu and, and Australian Wagyu would not be called Wagyu in Japan. It'd be called Kozatsugyu, which means hybrid beef. So Wagyu has to be, you know, 100% one of the four main, one of the four kind of sort of indigenous. I mean, obviously they didn't, they haven't, they haven't been on the island of Japan for 100,000 years or anything like that. But they're, they're sort of like, when the Japanese started eating beef, they kind of adapted the, the cattle they had already for field work and things like that for eating. And these four breeds are those kind of, what was in Japan at the time that they decided to, hey, let's actually start eating beef now, uh, you know, which the emperor decided actually. And, and, and you know, of those Japanese black is by far the most. So, so they have to be purebred, those four, to be Wagyu in Japan. So everything we have that's like a, a, a cross of black Angus and Japanese black, for example, that would be considered kozatsugyu in Japan. And it's a fraction of the cost. It comes to market much more quickly. It grows much faster and it never gets quite as fatty. It's still delicious. You know, it's not like it's a bad product or anything. So that's what I, during that month, that's mostly what I worked on was kozatsugyu and uh, fabricating kozatsugyu. But I got to touch a little bit, the Kobe beef uh, and, and the Matsuzaka, you know, it, so it's that kind of thing. It's like, you know, like day in, day out. So we don't have to like watch you constantly. You can do this because if you screw it up, you know, we can fix it. We didn't just lose $200 of product, you know, like in this small amount. And then, and then we'll let you touch this when we're like all standing around watching you kind of thing. So, um, but that also wasn't, you know, I would, that was like a month of training. It wasn't like years of, of working, but it was a good experience. So then you wind up going to Sushi Akoi in Ginza. Was there a reason you specifically picked that sushi restaurant? Because to my knowledge, like sushi is just kind of like, like you were talking about with Wagyu, like you have to like your first three years, like you're not even allowed to do anything, but like maybe they let you prep some rice. 
when I wanted to do sushi, uh, I was talking with chefs, you know, chefs that I had had contact with or that my wife had had contact with that I, so by that time I had married a, a Japanese woman that I'd met at the CIA. She went to the CIA too. Uh, and she was a food writer. So she'd come across, you know, she'd, she'd built some connections herself. And she introduced me to some chefs and I met some chefs and they all kind of said the same thing. They all said, we know you trained at like one of the most famous restaurants in Japan, but we don't care. <laughs> we really, really don't care. If you want to start again and you want to work here like 10, 20 years, we'd be happy to have you. But we can't give you any kind of like special, like, you know, I told them, like, I want to be here like three years, maybe, and just try to learn as much as I can before I go back to the US. And they're all like, no, no, you like, you know, we don't care about anything that you've done. If you work here like 10, 20 years normally, you're welcome to start working here. Absolutely. You know, you can speak the language, you're respectful, but we can't just like, pretty much everybody said that. And then I was introduced to Chef Alki who, so his father uh, had actually run a sushi restaurant in Kyoto. So he, his father had, had worked at a famous sushi restaurant in Tokyo. And then that restaurant wanted to do sort of a second branch in Kyoto. And they sent his father to run that second branch in Kyoto. Kyoto is not really a sushi town. It still isn't. So his father went and ran the second branch in Kyoto. And so he, Chef Aoki had spent his high school. Uh, he'd also, he, he didn't originally want to be a sushi chef. He uh, went to college for uh, judo and he actually went to, I think it was UC Santa Cruz for like a semester, uh, doing judo in the Bay area and, uh, and, you know, back to Tokyo and he did eventually get back into sushi. So he'd had a background where he, he had lived in Kyoto. He knew Kyoto. He respected Kyoto, which a lot of people, a lot of very old school Tokyo people think Kyoto is effeminate. They think Kyoto is degenerate. <laughs> you know, they, uh, have a pretty negative view of Kyoto and, you know, and again, this, this is like very old. So this would be like, this, this would be the equivalent of, um, you know, someone in, in Manchester, England, having a mistrust of those poofs down in London or some guy on the street in Staten Island being like, oh yeah, those guys in LA, they're, they're not worth it. It's, it's, it's that kind of thing, you know, like really died in the wool. They call them edokos, like the real old school Tokyo people um, just have a low opinion of, of Western Japan. And then honestly, vice versa, old school Kyoto people think Tokyo people are unsophisticated. And anyway, um, so I had a lot of this mistrust. So because he had spent his, his high school in Kyoto, he didn't have a mistrust. He liked and, and respected Kyoto culture. Um, and he thought it was cool that I had trained in Kaiseki. He didn't think it was like less manly than sushi or anything like that. He was a heavyweight judoka. He was 6'1". You know, there was none of that like physical, like he was, he like looked at me and he's like, okay, here's somebody kind of like me, like trained in Kyoto, a little bit too big for Japan. And then, you know, like I said, he also spent a semester in America. He spoke some English and he was like, all right, let's do this. I'll, I'll train you as much as I can in, in three years, how long you want to be here. And, uh, you can work here. I'll pay you and, uh, treat you just like everyone else. And it took some looking, but I was very fortunate to, to, to find him. And, and to work in sushiaki. Is that where you kind of first learned to deal with the poisonous fish? No, no. Chef Aoki does serve fugu, but I learned that at Kikinoi. Do you have to be certified to do that? To do it on your own, in your own restaurant, you have to be certified. But obviously you have to learn somehow. So you're allowed to do it under the supervision of someone who's certified. I fabricated that both at Kikinoi and at sushiaki. So I've, I've fabricated a lot of it. 
uh, I'm not certified myself. I want I want to go back. Uh, they only do the test at certain times of the year, and in, in different prefectures, it's at different times of the year. Like the Tokyo one is in like late July, and I just have to find I have to find a year, <laughs> one of these years where I'm like, all right, I can because you can't you have to go you have to be there for a month basically. It's it, the whole process takes about a month. You have like a pre-test and then the the test test, and and there's like a verbal. There's like an essay portion, essentially, you know, Fugu, there's about 12 or 15 species that you find around the waters of Japan and to be certified, you have to identify. So they'll, they'll bring out like a, like a big tray of like 10 of them on ice and you have to identify the species of all of them. And then there's the practical test as well. So, uh, it, the whole thing takes a while. It takes like a month, honestly, from start to finish. And so I just have to find like one of these days where I like have July free I'm, I'm going to go get certified, but. And it's more dangerous for you, the chef, than the person eating it, right? No, 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 no. Yeah, it's the other way around. I mean, for fugu, yes. If you're talking about like stonefish, if you think of, sto so, so stonefish or okoze in Japanese, that's different. So basically it, the difference is, is the fish venomous or poisonous? So venomous fish have like spines, teeth, they have something that injects venom into something. Poisonous fish have poison infused in their flesh. I guess for the fish, it's better to be venomous because you can act like if you're poisonous fish, it wasn't until after you're dead that anyone's going to find out that they did the wrong thing. So anyway, so fugu, which is a blowfish, which you have to get certified in, is poisonous. Uh, even though some fugu does have spines, there's no mechanism in the fugu to inject poison through the spines. Uh, the poison in, in, in the fugu is in the blood. It's in most of the organs. Uh, it comes out in like a slime on the skin as well. That's also poisonous. Um, if you're thinking of like stonefish or a kose that have the spikes down the back that actually have little little poison sacs in them and it doesn't have a muscle but if you're like a diver or something and you step on it that compression actually so it's, it's like a passive you know it has to be compressed by something else the fish can't compress it itself but once it's compressed it actually injects poison through the spine into whatever the spine's sticking into so so yeah stonefish is more dangerous for the chef preparing it than the guest but fugu is more dangerous for the guests. It depends on whether the fish is venomous or poisonous, basically. Definitely uh, good to know and get that straight <laughs> just for future reference. Before you wind up kind of coming back to the U.S., why did you pick New York City to return to? Was it just because you were already familiar with it? I mean, you could have gone D.C. Obviously, you could have gone anywhere on the West Coast that's closer to Japan. Why'd you pick New York? I mean, all the opportunities I had available for me were in New York. Uh, I was talking with some investors and they were like, Wait, we might invest in you, but it's got to be Manhattan. It's not going to be anywhere else. I ended up having a, a really good opportunity. Uh, there's a, there was an owner of a restaurant that lost its chef that came to Tokyo looking for a chef to take over and was introduced to Chef Aoki. And I was at that meeting and Chef Aoki turns to me and he's like, why don't you go? And the owner's like, oh, okay, all right, let's do this. And so that's how I got the opportunity to run uh, 69 Leonard Street in Tribeca. But I think... Uh, I don't know if these investors just knew, or, or I think they might have just been going with the trends, but um, uh, you know, it turns out that New York, for whatever reason, has a closer connection with authentic high-end Japanese than somewhere like LA or San Francisco or Seattle or Vancouver, which do have you know, a strong, by American standards, a strong Japanese community and a history of Japanese food, but for Italian food, it's backwards, for example, although it's changing in New York. But so, you know, in New York, there was a strong Italian community. So you, you, you had until recently, you had this red sauce Italian 
that isn't quite like any food in Italy, but that's what Italian food was in America for a long time. It's only recently that you've got chefs like training in three-star restaurants in Italy coming back and, and, you know, doing like things that are more like what you would see in high-end Italian cooking in a city in Italy today. You know, the same thing happened with Japanese cuisine where, you know, if you're talking about like what is close to going to a high-end restaurant in Tokyo today, New York City is probably the closest to any city in the whole world, even closer than like uh, Hong Kong. Uh, I think part of that is... Uh, Another part is that like, New Yorkers just love pickling. They love like strong flavors. They love salty things. And that's a big part of traditional Edo, uh, Tokyo style sushi. Uh, Hong Kong, it's more about like the more luxurious aspects, you know, Hong Kong sushi, you can, you can pay like a thousand dollars a person, but you're getting the things that the Hong Kong people like the abalone, you know, maybe gold leaf, maybe even like caviar, that kind of thing. Whereas New Yorkers will pay like maybe 300, maybe even a little more now but they don't mind when they get, you know, mackerel and kohada and sardines, you know, they don't, they, they, they love that. So if you go to a high-end sushi restaurant in New York city in Manhattan today, you'll get a much closer experience to going to a high-end sushi restaurant in Tokyo than you will really anywhere else in the world, you know, outside of Japan. So, you know, New York was, especially coming right out of Japan, just having a whole set of techniques that were, you know, I'd never worked at a Japanese restaurant in the United States. So it was, it was really the best possible kind of landing spot. Yeah, I would also think probably post-World War II were big allies and, and rebuilding Japan. So I got to imagine there's some connection there with Japanese businessmen, especially probably in like the 80s. Like they would go to New York more so. They're not really going to go to Seattle. They're not really going to... Business travel from Japan to America was probably Japan to New York, where like relocation or moving was probably like L.A., Vancouver, Seattle. I bet there's some roundabout connection there. That's that's quite possible. It's not something I've looked into, but that's quite possible. And yeah, but that definitely in terms of like trans, like people living here, you know, there have been Japanese living in LA for more than a hundred years. You know, there's been a significant Japanese community here for more than a hundred years. There's sort of an LA Japanese, honestly, that's sort of its own little kind of culture that's not quite the same as anything in in japan and again exactly like how you've got like new york italian which these days is more maybe new jersey italian or uh you know long island italian. you know you've got you know that which is also not quite like anything in, in italy so when you wind up at soji at 69 leonard that originally kind of started as like a little bit of a residency right that's right i was there to basically the, the chef had left all of a sudden uh the owner was essentially just holding the bag the space wasn't being used for anything it was kind of a waste so i came in you know got suppliers got some staff got it up and running we were serving food we were serving you know i was getting almost everything from japan although i did want to incorporate some you know local seafood as as i discovered it and as i discovered how to process it well and uh but still kind of it was still pretty much what I'd done in Tokyo, you know, get, getting from Japan, using the same set of techniques and serving a uh, mostly a, a Tokyo style sushi experience. It evolved slightly over time. But yeah, after about six months, the owner said, you know what, I, I'm happy with how this is going. I'm happy with the food you're serving. Why don't you stay? And uh, I said, OK, I ended up staying there three years, right, right through the kind of the ups and downs of the pandemic. And, and probably the biggest reason I left was, was the pandemic and just how difficult it made things. And also like, I, I hadn't, again, I hadn't planned to be there long-term when I arrived. And 
I was very happy to be there for as long as I was. And I was very happy with the relationship I had built with, you know, the staff and the, and the clientele and the owner and everything. But I did want to move on. How hard is it to stand out as a sushi restaurant in New York? Like you mentioned, like it's the closest experience that you're going to get to being in Tokyo eating sushi. Definitely the mecca of sushi in America and probably North America. How hard is it to stand out with all the other sushi restaurants that are in just Manhattan alone? 69 Leonard Street, when I was running, and it's still the case with Xion, who's, who's an, an amazing chef too. Yeah, Xion is, he, he, yeah, he's an amazing sushi chef. And I, I think the owner's approaches, you know, yeah, there's a lot of omakase restaurants in New York, and yeah, there's a lot of sushi restaurants. There's certainly less than 10, uh, I'm not sure how many right now, some, some, somewhere between five and 10, that are serving like what I would consider Tokyo style sushi. So the important thing in Tokyo style sushi is you make the, you make the nigiri, if you're going to put anything on it, you do it very fast. You know, if you're going to like, you maybe just paint some soy sauce on it, you know, or, or a compound sauce made of soy sauce and other things on it. You serve it right away and you eat it right away and you enjoy. I think, I think one of the things I find so appealing about it is it kind of reminds me of Kaiseki in a lot of ways where there's a fleeting quality to it. The impact is from the warmth of the rice, the temperature difference between the rice and the fish, the aeration in the rice that the fish is slowly pushing out of the rice as it's sitting there. You know, the fish is only like, what, 12 to 15 grams, but it's enough weight, you know, it's like less than half an ounce. That's enough weight to kind of push the, you know, the air that you work so carefully to, you know, you, you made the rice cohesive and yet airy. The weight of the fish is already starting to push that out within the first few seconds that it's sitting on the, on the plate. Edomai sushi, the Tokyo style sushi is you know, you, you do a wide range of seafood, you cover many different categories, you prepare it in a way that it, you know, you're, you're showing off the best qualities, you're not like covering up whatever, you know, you, you don't, you don't want to do so much like torching and things like that, because you know, just tasting the butane, you know, you don't want to do as much so much of that, you want to, you can do some salting, you can do some vinegaring, you can, you know, you, but you want to, again, keep that restraint. And you want to show off the fish and you're paying for good quality fish and you want to show your guests how good quality that fish is. And you want to serve that and you encourage them to eat it right away. I mean, you might even say like, like, that's not like I used to say, like, that's not getting better. <laughs> it's not improving. Please, <laughs> please <laughs> take a moment, pause your conversation and, and, and enjoy it. Like as soon as you can, I say there's less than 10 restaurants in, in New York that, are, that, that is their approach. Not that that's the only valid approach, but that's, that was the approach that I learned. And that's the approach I kind of like the most, I think. And so, and then there's plenty of diners in New York who also prefer that approach and patronize those restaurants. So then there's a question of standing out among those restaurants. Shoji, we were able to stand out because I think, I think what I wanted to do was incorporate more local fish. Cause I just thought it was a shame that New York was a port city and Historically had a strong seafood tradition, although at some point, probably in the 50s or 60s, it was kind of dying down. I wanted to use Peconic Bay, Bay Scallops, you know, I wanted to use the wild striped bass caught in places like Sheepshead Bay. And then, you know, going up the coast a little bit, I wanted to use the really excellent scallops from places like Nantucket and Cape Cod. Uh, and then of course, Boston tuna, pretty much. I think it's, I think a lot of chefs in New York now do use Boston tuna and even North Carolina tuna. But I feel like when I first started there, you were either restaurants like Onodera, which would import the tuna from Japan, or they would get like the farmery Spanish tuna. And it, you know, it was, it was either or. 
Um, and it, it's just so much extra effort to get yourself plugged into the Boston tuna pipeline, essentially. I, I do think more chefs are putting in that effort now, which, which, which I, I really like. I think that's kind of how we try to say that. And then also, you know, I think we're a little bit more elaborate on the pre-sushi dishes than, than a lot of restaurants are. You know, trying to cover almost, not, not exactly kaiseki, I wouldn't call it kaiseki, but some of those same techniques, you know, certain sauces, like a little hot pot or something. And I think there's other restaurants that take that up as well uh, in New York, but I would say those are kind of, that's kind of how we try to stand out. Did any of like the press or anything make any sort of difference? Like you get a three-star uh, New York Times review. I think you guys are named like one of the 10 best new restaurants in New York City. You do the Eater Omakase episode, you know, that kind of 15, 20 minute episode that's still out there, which I would encourage everybody to watch because it's, it's just a good series. They drop one every once in a while. But did any of that help or is it just kind of, it's New York, there's always another press thing going around? The New York Times review, we, we were definitely very busy for several months. I didn't know, like I, having not really been, uh, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't make my career in New York. I didn't realize like when the review came out, I was like, okay, that's a nice review. I feel like they kind of got it. I'm, I'm actually, cause you know, it, it's not the easiest thing in the world to get like what we're doing. Like you have to, it's, it's almost a niche of a niche, you know? And I was just very kind of impressed with the review, but I didn't think like, uh, you know, I got to be ready here to work, you know, go back to working 20 hours a day for the next few months. You know, uh, we have to like, maybe, maybe not have all of our reservations out on, uh, you know, up online, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe restrict that a little bit, you know? uh, maybe figure out what to do about the phones, you know, maybe, uh, have like a messaging system or something like we didn't do any of that. We were, we were completely unprepared for almost completely unprepared. The owner kind of knew what it meant. The owner was like, I think he kind of knew what it meant. And he and I talked about it a little bit, but I don't, I don't think he really realized how, how rough it would be and how rough it would be on us and, and on the staff, you know, pivoting to like, okay, we're, we're going to have to, you know, we're going to have to put up or shut up here for the next few months. And we're just, that's just the way it is. And let's be as supportive of each other as possible, you know, but uh, no, it definitely had an impact. Certainly the New York times review did. And then uh, I'd say when we came out in the, in the 10 best list, uh, there was a small bump there in terms of, uh, you know, people coming in and saying, Oh, Hey, I saw you on this, but certainly the review, we were probably booked for two or three months uh, after the review came out. As you mentioned with like the other restaurants in your category at that time, you know, you're sourcing from different parts, trying to incorporate American fish that's, you know, sourced off New York and, and Boston and stuff at that time too. But, you know, everybody's probably still kind of out for the same stuff, you know, when Firefly Squid is in season, like everybody's trying to get that and, and whatnot. Do you pay attention to what other restaurants are doing? Like you're quote unquote competitors, or are you just worried about executing your own thing? I would say I am not probably to a fault. Perhaps I should be more from kind of a business perspective. I would say whatever cuisine you're trying to do, if there's like peers and or rivals like in your community that are kind of doing something somewhat similar, you can incorporate things. But I just have found that I never have enough. I have a lot of things I want to share based on my experiences and based on my just what I what I think is special and what I want to show with people and 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 have them enjoy and it there's almost no room there there's even enough room for what I want to do honestly like I think it's probably true for any chef where like this one restaurant that you're working at let's say you're the executive chef and you're in charge of the menu and everything 
it's not like you're putting everything you've ever learned into this restaurant. Like it never, that never happens. You, you, you really only ever get to show like somewhere between maybe 10 and 30% of, of what you maybe have to show. And it was always so difficult kind of distilling everything I wanted to do down into like one meal at that moment that there is no room for like, oh, this, this restaurant is serving this. Like, well, I mean, if I happen to be serving that also, great. I've, I've already had to like cut out so many things. Like I have to cut something else out so I can serve this, which you can already get in another restaurant. Like why? I think uh, guests have things they, they do want to eat. And I think there's, you know, it's true in Japan too. You know, Kikinoi, definitely the chef of Kikinoi is looking around at what other restaurants are doing. I, I know he steals dishes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, the, the good borrow, the great steal. He's, he's a great one. I know he, he finds out chefs that are very talented and brilliant and, and goes and eats there and, and tries to uh, understand what they're doing. And a restaurant like Kikinoi is sort of like a, a battleship or an aircraft carrier. Like it's not going to turn quickly, but he will inject new things from time to time. I, I think that's a, a certainly a, a, a valid way to be an executive chef. I've just never quite had the room for it. And it's probably, a, uh, to some extent, a lack of maturity on my part that, that I haven't. Cause like, you know, I look at like more mature restaurants are more plugged into their, where they are and, and what their peers and or rivals are doing. I've never quite gotten to that point as an executive chef where I, I, I'm not just so, you know, like I said, I have to edit down what I want to show so much already. I have to cut something else out so I can incorporate something just because someone else is doing it. I, but yeah, like may, I, I probably should, and maybe eventually I, I will find ways to do that. And I think all the all the good chefs they don't they don't do it just to do it. They don't do it and then they're like, well, I don't want to do it, but I'm going to do it because these people do. It. I don't think any chef is at least any good chef is like that. So there's definitely a a right way to do it. I just haven't really figured it out yet. When you have like a counter seat only restaurant. How do you balance the customer experience with the guest service portion where you want to have a sommelier there to to do wine pairings and stuff, right? But then that interferes with the guest kind of focusing on, especially in like a sushi and omakase sushi experience, they're not focusing on you or focusing on what's being prepared in that moment. So like, how do you balance those? Do you just kind of have to pick which one you're going to go with? When I've seen it done right, um, and there's some restaurants that do it right. There's a restaurant called Kanda in Tokyo, which is a kaiseki couple restaurant. And, you know, it's a counter kaiseki experience. They do have uh, maybe a couple sommeliers uh, on staff, and those sommeliers will uh, actually provide wines, not not so much sake. Uh, and they're really good at pairing wines with with the Japanese cuisine that they're serving. You, usually, like when you sit down in a restaurant and counter restaurant the same way, especially if it's going to be like a course meal and it's going to take you two hours, two and a half hours, maybe even three hours, you've got like a 15 minute, maybe even 20 minute window at the front where, you know, like if, if it's going to be a simultaneous thing where all the guests are eating at the same time, like let's say the seating time is six o'clock, it doesn't really get going until maybe 620. There's a period there where if you have a sommelier on staff, that that sommelier can then address each guest uh, as they come in um, and kind of gauge where they are and what they want to do in terms of beverages, you know, because some guests, a lot of guests want a pairing. Honestly, a lot of the most sophisticated guests, they just want a really good bottle to enjoy with the meal. I think pairing is kind of a young people thing and I like it. I think it's a good thing to offer. I know I personally, if I'm out dining and I have a choice between like a, 
some good vintage uh, Jacques Salos rosé champagne that I can enjoy throughout the meal or a pairing. I, I like I'm, I'm having the vintage Jacques Salos. <laughs> like, come on. <laughs> and and just enjoying how that bottle. And the same goes for like a, a really good bottle of sake, like a, a properly made bottle of sake that's been properly shipped and properly stored uh, has a dynamism to it from the beginning to the end. And it should you know, it should be something like you, that you don't really keep on ice and that you uh, enjoy kind of throughout the meal. And it doesn't have to be super expensive, you know, like a nice natural Chenin Blanc from Loire can go really great with a Japanese meal, as can, you know, some of the sakes from breweries like uh, Soho Mare, you know, like the not super expensive, but still really honestly made Harada is another good one that change over the course of the bottle but in good ways you know like the first sip and the last sip are pleasurable just in different ways so i prefer that to a tasting like to like little amounts of different things to pair with a different food but i only got to that point after having like lots and lots of uh, pairings so uh and having lots of you know wine and lots of sake so pairing in a sense is 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 almost easier you have to kind of do all the work in advance and then you just offer it like, oh, hey, here's the pairing. And then it just becomes like the same, you know, service aspect it always is where, you know, how much do you want to, after that initial like 15 minutes that you set everything up, how much do you want to intrude on the guest experience? And that's, that's true with any table setting, with any service, you know, you know, some guests, they're really there for the food. Uh, they want the full experience. They want to talk to you and they often want to talk to the, to the service as well about the drinks. Sometimes they want to talk to, if you're, the, if you're a sushi chef or a chef behind the counter, they often want to talk to you about the drinks as well. And then other guests are there, they're on a date or it's like a business thing, or they're just, they just want to have a good time and they want to enjoy the experience, but they're not really there to get into like a deep intellectual conversation about the difference between Ginjo and Dai Ginjo and, and the history of it. You know, that's not, that's not what they're there for. But again, I think that it doesn't change that much with a counter setting. It, it's, a, it's often the same, you know, you, you, get, you give yourself time in the beginning to get it set up. To, to, to sound out the guests, to, to understand what they're interested in. And then it's just like touching from time to time and based entirely on what they're there for. I agree with, you know, especially the pairing part. To me, I always feel like if I ever do a wine pairing, I'm chasing. You become really conscious of how many glasses are on your table. And not that sommeliers care. I've asked a bunch and they're like, yeah, we don't, we don't care if you don't like that wine, whatever. But you just feel like I got, there's like three glasses, like this one's from two courses ago. I really enjoy it, but like, I got to get rid of this one and there's another thing's coming and and you just wind up like, it's a different experience um, where I'm more like, yeah, like just get a bottle and like drink that throughout the whole thing. Something that kind of goes with everything. You kind of touched on it earlier, coronavirus pandemic happens and everything and, and you're still at Soji and then, you know, you weren't planning on being in New York for years and years and years. How did you kind of wind up going out to LA and getting involved with Amari? I was having a phone conversation with a uh, chef that I had met in Kyoto back in maybe 2008 or so after he uh, trained at different restaurants in Kyoto, uh, went to LA. It, it took him years, but he eventually pulled together all the funding he needed, opened his own place and just knocked it out of the park. That's Shibumi. Um, his name's David Schlosser. Honestly, one of the best Japanese restaurants in the country. I think underrated. I think greatly underrated. And I'm not just saying that because he's my friend, but uh, like it's it has a Michelin star, you know. It's the former, you know, RIP um, food critic for the LA Times said it was one of his favorite restaurants in LA. I think he, one year he put it like number two after Providence, I think. So it's 
it's well rated, but I still think it's underrated because there's really almost nowhere in the US you can get like a really authentic Japanese cuisine experience that isn't at all sushi. It's not, you know, and it's not ramen. It's not, it's not those categories. It's like, if you were to go out to a really good, like dining bar in Tokyo, really sophisticated part of town, it'd be very much like Shibumi, but it, it's, you know, Shibumi's got its own, you know, Chef David really likes fermented vegetables. He really likes like obscure meat cookery in Japan. Cause like in the countryside in Japan, people cook everything. People don't realize, you know, duck, of course, but like goose, um, there's a strong history of that in Japan. So, you know, Shibumi's showing that. Like you can't get that anywhere in, in the US. He and I were on the phone. He's like, oh, I've been asked to, you know, be a consultant on this new project. And he was describing it to me. I was like, yeah, well, tell me about it. Uh, maybe I can, like, I didn't think I would come work there. I thought I would just like maybe help him sketch out some ideas or something. And he's like, yeah, it's going to be on the West side. So it has to be like a little more light and sunny than Shibumi, you know, maybe a little more seafood focused, you know, we're going to be serving some sushi. Definitely. It won't be just, you know, like cuisine. Uh, it'll be a mix of sushi and cuisine and, you know, lots of vegetables. These are his words. I think I kind of agree with him too. The best farmer's market in the country is right there. The Santa Monica farmer's market. I'm listening to them. I'm thinking like, this sounds really appealing. Like I really enjoyed doing, you know, Edomai sushi. You know, it was one of those things where, you know, as a chef, there's like all these things you want to, you know, Kyoto cuisine is about local vegetables. You know, Kyoto is one of the best vegetable growing regions in the whole world. Uh, there's, there's all these heirloom varieties that have been developed by Buddhist monks, like in their little gardens that they've tended for centuries. And, you know, there's some good farming going on in New York. And, and I think the green market system is great. The Union Square green market is great. But to be able to do sushi and Japanese cuisine and a lot of vegetable cookery was just very, very appealing to me. Yeah. So I took, uh, I took the job. I said, well, why don't I be your chef de cuisine? And, uh, and he said, really? Okay. Let me, uh, let me talk to the owners. And, and they said, yeah, heck yeah. So how often do you guys change the menu there? Right now we're pretty much four seasons. Like right now, for example, I'm waiting for the tomatoes to get really good. Uh, they haven't quite gotten there yet. And then right now I have a little bit of tomatoes on the menu because there's some good tomatoes right now. But um, maybe this week we'll start to see the really good tomatoes. Maybe next week. Uh, I've been talking to the farmers. So there's a lot of that. It's not It's not like, okay, this month we're doing this, this month we're doing that. It's, it's sort of like, I really want to put this dish on the menu, but I'm going to wait till this vegetable is really at its peak before I do that. Also, the seasons here are a lot longer. Like something like... Something will come into season here and it'll be in season for months. And, you know, do I take it off just because I'm bored with it or just because like, like if it's still good and, you know, guests still want to eat it, I shouldn't just like yank it just because it's been a month or whatever. There's a different kind of seasonality in Southern California, certainly. Uh, there, there is seasonality. Don't let anybody tell you that there isn't, but, but uh, it's, it's a different kind of seasonality. And it's true often of the seafood as well. There's either longer seasons or there's actually multiple seasons. So someone that would only have like one season in on say the East Coast will have say three seasons here where they, they have three times during the year that they'll plant it and it'll come up and then it'll be a little bit different each time. That's been really interesting uh, to adapt to. And a lot of the seasons are the same, you know, like root vegetables are best in late fall here just as they are anywhere else. So a lot of things are the same. But And you guys are cooking washoku cuisine? That's right. You know, you can read the definition, traditional dietary culture of Japan, but like, what does it mean exactly? Like what is washoku cuisine? So washoku means Japanese cuisine. It sort of means our cuisine from a Japanese perspective. 
It's like if we were to say American cuisine instead of American cuisine, you know, it's, it's, this is what we're proud of cooking. And it's sort of the, you, you take washoku and you make it very refined and luxurious in a Japanese context, meaning with all the connections to Buddhism and everything. And then that's what kaiseki is. So washoku is sort of the, I think, I think again, the, the best is to draw parallels to French cuisine. Washoku is like Lyon cooking in France, not so much like the Parisian cooking or the South of France cooking, where you're incorporating so many, you know, elements from outside, you know, like in the South of France, they incorporate a lot of North African elements and it's more traditional Japanese cooking and based on the things that the Japanese enjoy. So the, the fundamental meal in Japan is rice, pickled vegetables, and miso soup. That's the fundamental meal in Japan. So of course we offer rice and pickled vegetables and miso soup. And then you kind of, you add to that meal. So you, you would have a shusai, a main, and like fuksai, which are side dishes, and maybe a zensai, which is, a, which is an appetizer. Uh, and you eat the rice towards the end because rice fills you up. And you might sit down at a restaurant in Japan if you're having washoku, and you're going to have maybe some drinks, you're going to have vegetables, you're going to have fish and or meat. Um, and then you're going to kind of finish with the rice and the miso soup. And then we also incorporate sushi. So you can basically have sushi if you don't just want like a bowl of right rice, which most of our guests do prefer to have sushi at that, at that time. So, you know, sushi, uh, it's a way to kind of, and in, in sort of a casual a la carte setting, you know, to fold all that in, you can kind of put together your own experience. You can look at the menu and say, oh, this is what I want to eat. Or we also have a, a course menu, you know, washoku tasting where everything's sort of coursed out for you. And if, if it's like your first time or you're not as familiar with everything, you just say, oh, I'll just take a course. And then you, you get to experience both the flavors, but also the progression and, and the pace that I, I think makes washoku really special. It's a great way to, it's a great way to eat. Like you, you feel hungry. And then of course the meal, you're slowly getting full. Uh, and then at the end you have some rice and then all of a sudden you're like, oh, hey, I'm actually really full. And, and yet, and yet I feel light. Uh, it's a, I think it's a great way to eat. And, and not just for Southern California where most people eat that way anyway, but, uh, I think, I think anywhere it's a great way to eat. You guys also have like, uh, I think an online ordering, uh, for delivery, right? You guys do like bento boxes. That's right. We are, we are currently offering sashimi bentos and pretty much all of our rolls. We uh, have to uh, line a couple of things up first before we can expand that, but we'll be expanding that to, you know, some, some cooked items and we should be able to offer like soups, you know, to go as well. But restaurant's been open for, well, just under a year, actually. It had a long soft open. So it's hard to say like, when was he actually opening? The official opening date was August 20th of last year. Yeah. You guys are coming up on a year then. So, I mean, you know, looking back over the first year, meet your expectation on everything that happened, uh, anything that you were surprised to see happen, anything that you would change if you could do it over again? I think it's a little too early to say. Uh, ask, ask me again in like a year or two uh, when I have a little more perspective. I think the customers are great. There's a maturity to the, to the Southern California dining community. They tend to, you know, in New York, people tend to make money and they get over like 35 and they want to have kids and they get the heck out of New York. And you really don't get a lot of like, and the, like the customers that would come to Shoji that were in like their 40s or 50s and had money and knew what they wanted and knew what they liked and knew how they wanted to enjoy themselves. They were often driving in from like Westchester or somewhere else. 
LA is a little different. People stay in LA, you know, they, people raise families in LA. Uh, I think to extent that they, they don't so much in, uh, certainly in Manhattan, there's a maturity to the clientele that I really like. The staff, you know, the other thing is, you know, if you're working as a young cook in LA, uh, you don't have to live in a shithole <laughs> necessarily. I mean, the rent here is not cheap, but it's not Manhattan. Uh, working as a working as a young cook in Manhattan is really really tough life, and it I mean you love what you do of course, but it's also like everything else in your life is really unpleasant. Your living situation is very unpleasant. Your commute is very unpleasant. Uh, you know you you have the choice between you save up to improve your life or you actually go have fun. Like you have that choice. You can't you can't really do both uh, as a young cook uh, un- unless you're already coming from a lot of money or something like that. You can't already, you can't really, it's, it's really hard to be a young cook in, in Manhattan. It's a lot more doable in LA. I think the, the, the pool of talent here is, it kind of reflects that there's uh, just some great, great young chefs, you know, not, not yet chef de cuisine or, or executive chef, but some great young like chefs de partie who are very confident in themselves and, and, uh, and like their lives, but are also great chefs and understand ingredients and are well-educated. And there's a lot of that here. And it's, it's really it's really a pleasure. I mean, there's a lot of that in New York too. But again, like I said, there's like this, the life is so hard in New York sometimes that I think it can detract from trying, trying to build a life as a culinary professional. Is that the biggest difference you'd say between the two, cooking in LA versus cooking in New York? Is just all the outside of cooking stuff? No, I wouldn't say it's the biggest difference. No, uh, it is a significant difference. But the biggest difference is definitely the overall, you know, here it's a lot more vegetable focused every cuisine up and down, like high end, low end, everything. It's a lot more vegetable focused. You just have like, you know, when I first got here, I'm like, why does everyone put salads on everything? What's with all these salads? Everywhere? I don't need all these salads. And then I started eating the salads and I'm like, oh, okay, that's why. Cause the, the, just the, the lettuce is so, they just like, don't have to do anything. Just the lettuce is so good here. It's totally different. It's, it's, you really can, like I said, there's great farmers working in, in, you know, around New York city. They're bringing some great products to the green market, but you don't get like, all the amazing vegetables all year, like you do here. And it really affects the way people approach food here. And it affects, affect professionals and it affects diners as well. It affects people at home. You can go to a, a supermarket here and get amazing vegetables, bring it home and eat it. Like you, so you end up, you know, New York cuisine is a lot of, again, in a sense, it doesn't matter what kind of cuisine. There's a lot of cured meats or cured fish. There's a lot of kind of saltier things and, uh, there's some of that here, but the balance is very different. And it, it's true, like I said, it's true across the cuisines. I'd say that's the biggest difference between cooking in New York versus cooking in LA. The lifestyle is a significant difference, but I, I think the overall aesthetic, the kinds of ingredients that you're using is probably the biggest difference. Do you source most of your ingredients locally then from like the LA, California area? Or are you still getting stuff from Japan sometimes? Yeah, most of it's local or West Coast. We get a little from Japan and then every once in a while we'll get like an East Coast thing that, you know, like, like scallops, for example, are hard to find West Coast. We'll, we'll get that from Maine or from Massachusetts. But I was reading in an interview, you said there's no conventional wisdom of how to prepare the seafood from the U.S. for sushi. So you have to figure everything out for yourself. What did you mean by that? Well, a good example would be like the wild striped bass. When you're preparing like a, a mackerel from Japan, there's hundreds of years of tradition. In fact, there's a, there's a mackerel road in Japan that runs from the, the coast north of Kyoto over the hills into the city of Kyoto. And they would catch mackerel on the coast. They would fillet and salt it on the coast. 
and then put it on poles and run it over the hills into Kyoto for people to eat in Kyoto. You know, this was before there was refrigeration. So filleting and salting mackerel, you know, there's just, there's just these very well-established ways of dealing with certain fish. You know, the fish in, say, the Northeast, some of it's different, like, um, like scallops. Uh, yes, you could serve it straight, but the scallops in the Northeast are different from... So in, in traditional uh, Edomaisuchi, you don't even serve scallops, but you might serve something called a uh, tairagai or a pen shell in English, which is sort of like a scallop, but a lot firmer. I found I didn't like scallop sushi as it was, but I found that I could, you know, do things like poach the scallop at a very low temperature to tighten it up a little bit, basically play with the texture and then serve something that was, you know, it wasn't just completely mushy. You know, it had, it had a little bit of texture to it uh, that could hold up as, as sushi. And then there's things like the, the wild striped bass, which, so there's a, there's a, the sea bass in Japan called Suzuki that's used for, uh, you can serve it as sushi as well, as well as sashimi, as well as grilled. So the, the wild striped bass, nobody's doing a kijime on wild striped bass, at least at that time. Maybe some people are now, uh, be interested to see that. But, uh, so if you're not doing a kijime, if you're not doing the, you know, the special slaughtering, then it's kind of not the greatest thing to serve raw. But even if you're going to grill it, like what, what are you going to do? So wild striped bass has a very, very thick skin compared to say Japanese sea bass. I remember learning about this technique called abarayaki, where you you take fish and you skewer it and salt it like you're going to grill it. But instead of grilling it, you hold it over a, a, your frying setup and you baste it with hot oil uh, a few times, let the oil drain off and then grill it. Like applying that technique to the wild striped bass gives you this like deeply crunchy skin that, you know, the skin, by the, by the time the skin would cook, the whole thing would be overcooked normally. But so, so things like that, um, that you don't like this fish doesn't exist in Japan. There's no, one of the reasons why it takes so long to, to do an apprenticeship in Japan is because there's so much to learn. It's not like Japanese are born knowing these things. Like they need to go through it too. And it's a lot to learn when you, if you come to, to say New York or something and you're like, okay, I want to apply as much of what I learned as possible. I don't want to just get everything from Japan. Now you have to put an extra effort because you're, you know, you weren't trained in what you have to do, but what it has to stand up along. So, okay, I can import this one fish from Japan. I know it's a great fish. They've been fishing this fish for hundreds of years. Uh, if I pay enough, I can get the best version of that fish. Cause you know, it's all done on an auction system. So the best tends to rise to the top. I learned how to prepare this fish in the best possible way at the best possible restaurants. Now I've got this local New York fish or from New England or something, uh, or even New Jersey. There's great fish from New Jersey too, by the way. And I'm going to serve it alongside this thing from Japan. You know, you know, so I've got King Midai, I've got Kohada, you know, I've got a Japanese mackerel and then I've got a wild striped bass and the wild striped bass from Sheep's Head Bay. I'm thinking, I'm thinking this is a great fish. There's got to be a way to make this fish stand with this other fish and not have some people say, oh, well, it's cute that they're serving local fish, but I noticed a little drop. I didn't want that at all. So that was kind of the challenge. And I think that's a challenge for anybody who, who wants to accept that challenge, you know, coming from a set of techniques that were developed somewhere else. What's the biggest difference between working in Japan and working in America as a chef? It's got to be the, the work culture. You know, in Japan, hard work is a given. You don't really need leadership in Japan as a chef. The Japanese give a lot of leeway to people in leadership positions. I think a lot of chefs from Japan have trouble succeeding here, especially in larger settings, because uh, American chefs are and cooks, you know, basically the whole kitchen staff is more... 
I don't want to say they're more independent because the Japanese are also very independent, but you really have to earn their respect, you know, in a way you don't have to do in Japan. I, I do think a lot of chefs from Japan are able to earn that respect, but I think a lot are not. When they don't, they, they tend to blame Americans and they'll say like, oh, they're lazy and stuff like that. And that's not true. It's just that Americans will, will lend you their efforts if they believe in you and they believe in what you're doing. You have to earn that like really every day in America. And it kind of helps sharpen you as well. There's, there's some kind of dead weight, even in some Japanese kitchens, even in some of the, the bigger Japanese kitchens, certainly in Japanese corporations, there's dead weight of like older, you know, staff who have the respect of everybody just from their seniority, but they don't have the productivity and they don't really have the leadership to sort of be really what they ought to be at that point in their careers. And uh, you don't really see that here in the US because you got to be sharp to, to muster the contributions that you need to muster here to, you know, to, to make an impact on something, All, you know, top to bottom in an organization, that's, that's the biggest difference is just how, how different the Japanese work, work culture is, you know, what's expected of you at the bottom, what's expected of you in the middle, what's expected of you at the top in Japan are totally different from here. I feel like what you're describing almost is like a union shop. Union, you know, you have these guys with all the seniority, but maybe they're not as they're not as young as some of the other guys who don't have the seniority who are doing, you know, maybe the more physical jobs in a way, in a roundabout way. It's not a direct comparison, obviously. Strangely enough, there's no unions in Japan, at least not the way we think of them here. Food appropriation. What's your take on it? Because you get these people and somebody like you, you went over to Japan, you cooked, you were there for 10 years, but there's still people that would be like, well, that's just a white guy making Japanese food and it's not real Japanese food because he's he's not from Japan, right? I think David got some pushback. People like Andy Ricker, who had a couple Thai restaurants, you know, he lives in Thailand now. He even got pushback, you know, back in the day for himself too, when it was like, oh, it's a white guy cooking Thai food. And it's like, well, he went over there like all the time, lived with people, like learned all these local recipes and stuff. Like, I don't, you can't get any more authentic than that. Like, you know, I, I do think that cuisine, because it's partially an entertainment field, like entertainment is one of the last fields in America where racial profiling is socially acceptable. You'll read a review in a major newspaper of a magazine where they're talking about the ethnicity of the chef and how it affects what they're doing. You know, they say, oh, there's this Japanese restaurant and the chef who's half Japanese is like this and this, this is like, what, what does that matter? You know, but it's, it's part, it's, it's socially acceptable. So I think for some people, it doesn't matter at all. Uh, for some people, it matters in a sort of like, they're fascinated, you know, they're like, oh, let's see what this person as a different ethnicity brings to the table. And then, and then there's some people where it doesn't matter at all. And, you know, there was a time where, you know, people wouldn't go to French restaurants if, the chef didn't have a French name and like restaurant owners, if they hired a chef who wasn't French, they'd be like, can you change your name? Like, instead of, you know, instead of Frank Ocean, can you be Francois Le Maire or something, please? Like, can you maybe think, consider that? Cause they knew it was so important for their business. You know, I think, you know, Japanese cuisine, there's still enough people out there that have that mindset that it affects, you know, things, you know, it's sort of like, um, I also think that once you get to a certain level of skill and a level of training required to do something, it really doesn't matter at all. Like I said, Japanese are not born knowing how to do this. I outlasted so many young Japanese people who quit, who couldn't stay in the saddle. And, and I stayed in that saddle and I'm still staying in that saddle. 
I, I've said this to, to, to people recently. Um, if you want to listen to like the best Bach performance on a cello, it's probably Yo-Yo Ma. And it doesn't matter that he's Chinese. It's not like you're going to get the best possible Bach performance on a cello by finding someone who's German. It's, it's not how it works. I mean, I'm sure there's plenty of talented German cello players, but it's such a, it's the kind of thing that takes so many years of dedication that not just your, of course, ethnicity doesn't matter at all, but even like your up, like your background, like your cultural background, what you were brought up with, doesn't even matter that much either, you know? I think those of us who do go into a cuisine like this, even if we weren't brought up with it, there's something about it that speaks to us. So I don't know if it's a past life thing. I don't know if it's, it could just be like, you know, my mother instilled me with certain aesthetic things that actually happen to really align well with Japanese, you know, with washoku aesthetics and, you know, from a cuisine perspective. So maybe that's it. I, I guess those of us who do do this, who aren't, I guess, ethnically correct. We just have to sort of hold on and like I said, stay in the saddle and just keep working. A lot of people have caught up already that, you know, ethnicity is not a very good determinant of what you're good at and what you're not good at. Uh, you know, like I said, it's, it's time, you know, like people, not, today you wouldn't go to a French restaurant and, and say, oh, this is crap because, you know, you know, somebody like Thomas Keller probably blew that away 30 years ago. Uh, Italian, the hottest Italian restaurants in New York right now are not necessarily helmed by anybody with any Italian ethnicity. Same with LA. You know, you can go to Japan, you can have amazing Italian and French food in Japan, like amazing, uh, amazing level of technique, aesthetics, ingredients. And of course the chefs are all Japanese. I don't know. I think it's what you, you know, it's like, uh, it's like ratatouille. <laughs> it's like the mouse. Like it's anyone can cook, not in the sense that the ability to cook is, is in everybody but more in the sense that you can't prejudge from someone's background, whether they can cook or not. Like you can't, you have to sort of let the work speak for it, not, not anything else. Why is it so difficult to get great sushi, great omakase restaurants outside of major airline hub cities? You know, New York, LA, Seattle, Miami, Chicago, they're all tied to major airlines. It's very difficult to find like a high quality omakase restaurant in here in Columbus or Kansas City? Is it just because it's easier to ship ingredients in or? I say it's part of it. It's also, you know, you're not going to get good omakase for less than like $120. I would say that's the absolute minimum. Uh, that's true in Japan too. Like you go out, you go out for good sushi, it's going to cost you at least $120 or so in Japan at, at the bottom end. You can get really good sushi for $120 in Japan. You can't get really good. You can, I mean, you can get an enjoyable meal for like twenty, thirty dollars in Japan, but it's not. That's not going to be like a good omakase with like the like the uh, just a progression of amazing ingredients. Um, you're talking about a minimum of say one hundred and twenty at the absolute bottom end. How many restaurants in Columbus cost one hundred and twenty? Like how many how many restaurants at that price point? I think as that changes is is when it changes. So like Atlanta is starting to get some pretty good sushi restaurants coming up. There's there's a handful. You know Atlanta's. But at the same time, like high-end restaurants of all stripes are coming up in Atlanta because there's a lot more buying power there now. And uh, same with Dallas, uh, same, I believe with Houston, I'm not really sure what's going on in Houston. I think there, there are some fish that travel better than other fish. There's some fish that need to be aged anyway. So an extra 24 hours of travel time for your stuff from Japan does affect what you can serve. But if you're careful, it doesn't necessarily mean it won't be as good. You know, you just, you can't serve this thing, but you can serve all this other stuff that, you know, needed to be aged anyway. 
and of course that technology keeps getting better. Um, the packers in Japan keep getting better. I think it's more just like how many you know expensive restaurants can can this community support really you know this in this locality and then you know only a subset of those restaurants are going to be sushi restaurants and if you've only got like five restaurants in your town that are 120 dollars or more there's a chance that one of them is a sushi restaurant but then there's no competition among among those to you know get better and to, so I, I know i think that's got more to do with it than than logistics What's next for you professionally? I mean, obviously you're the CDC at Amari there, but anything you kind of see on the horizon aside from getting the restaurant, you know, dialed in, would you ever consider, you know, working in Japan again? Anything like that? As far as Amari goes, they've asked me to be the executive chef. And so uh, I've agreed and they're going to change the name. Actually, uh, they're going to change the name to uh, Kiitsu. Uh, which is part of a, a Buddhist phrase that refers to um, kind of how everything comes together into one eventually. So that's definitely my near future. Beyond that, when I came back to the U.S., I, I guess what kind of struck me was how, especially in New York, the way Japanese cuisine is usually done is to just get as much as possible from Japan. Uh, and that's how you, you know, provide value to your guests. You know, that's what most of the guests are looking for. And it just, you know, you compare that with some of the great, you know, French technique restaurants or Italian technique restaurants in the United States. And while they might get some things, you know, like if you're Italian, you might get, you know, Parmigiano Reggiano from Italy because nothing quite like that is made anywhere else. The idea that you'd get like everything from Italy, like you have to get your fish from Italy, you have to get your vegetables from Italy is kind of ridiculous. I guess I, I very quickly decided that the my primary career is to, you know, be a chef, to run restaurants, to, you know, solve problems, to, you know, create experiences for guests. That's, that would be my primary. But my, I guess, ulterior motive is to work towards making Japanese food in America look more like, say, Italian food looks in California here, where, yes, you get a few pantry items from Italy, but you're using local vegetables, you're using local seafood, and you're using Italian techniques and aesthetics to kind of show off just how great the produce is here, in, wherever you are, whether it's California or New York or Texas, you know, wherever you are, when you're in other cuisines that aren't Japanese, generally what you do as a chef is you use your body of techniques to show off kind of how good things are where you are. It's connected to where you are. Cuisine is and should be connected to where you are. I feel like especially high-end Japanese is developing in kind of the wrong direction. It has been developing in the wrong direction. Uh, the whole point of learning a body of technique and an aesthetic is to then, at least in terms of cuisine, is to localize that. Uh, so that's kind of my ulterior motive. It's going to take a lot. It's going to take a lot of time. It's going to take just, you know, kind of whittling away at things like how seafood is handled from the ocean to the restaurant. Most of the work's already been done on the vegetable side. You know, the whole farm to table movement took hold pretty well here for, for, for decades now. You know, farm to table has been a big part of Japanese cuisine for hundreds of years. But a lot of that work has already been done. But uh, this like the seat to table work is still pretty especially when you're talking about something you want to serve raw. I mean, one of the reasons why high-end restaurants tend to get things from Japan, not even necessarily Japanese restaurants, a lot of non-Japanese restaurants, part of their 
image is that they import things from Japan is because, you know, the handling and processing of uh, seafood and a few other things in Japan is, is just a lot better overall. Uh, there's more skill and attention and care at every step of the way, you know, every hand that, uh, you know, a fish passes through on its way to your restaurant is, is a more skillful and attentive hand on the Japanese side uh, than you'll get pretty much anywhere in the U.S., even, even at the very best. Uh, you know, part of it is uh, kind of identifying and rewarding the people that are taking things more seriously. You know, uh, I think as a chef, you choose, in a sense, your vendors are people that you patronize. So your guests patronize you as a restaurant and support you. Um, and are happy to pay for their experience because they enjoy it so much. And I think, uh, you know, as a chef, of course, you want to control costs as much as possible. But I think it's also important to identify the vendors that are special. And I think for a long time, farmers have been accorded that. But I think we also really need to start doing it in the realm of seafood as well. Identify the individuals that are special, that are doing beyond and that you can taste the difference and to patronize those individuals and to uh you know in, in japan that system already exists you you because the fish is auctioned you know better fish commands a higher price which inherently rewards uh the fishermen and and anyone else along the the chain that knows what they're doing uh and and has pride and care in what they're doing rather than buy mackerel just hauled in by a net at 250 a pound and maybe, you know, out of 10 mackerel, like one is exceptional, eight are okay, and one is awful. You know, instead of that, I would rather pay $20 a pound for a really exceptional mackerel, as you do in Japan, to, just to have that like for Boston mackerel or New Jersey mackerel, you know, that, that kind of thing. And, and wherever, wherever that is, whatever fish that applies to, to kind of just work towards that, that future where, you know, the craftspeople that provide us with the food that we serve are rewarded for their skill, their experience, their care, how much heart and soul they put into what they do, basically. And I think as chefs, we we should, as our guests, as we want our guests to patronize us for being, uh, for taking extra care for all of our experience and all of our hard work, I think we should then turn around and patronize the purveyors uh, that also demonstrate that kind of commitment. With that system that you're describing, are you talking even at the end of that in the restaurant, you know, live tanks? Are you just talking overall, you know, not using draggers or anything like that, you know, line fishing and stuff like that? I guess to be specific, uh, live tanks are in general a very bad idea. You can make it work, but most seafood is made significantly worse by being kept in live tanks. It's it's generally better, like shellfish is a perfect example. You know, any kind of lobster or shrimp, when it's pulled out of the ocean, if it's put on, say, sawdust or wood shavings uh, and kept at the right temperature, they will actually survive for a couple of days. They taste much, 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 much better like that than if they were kept in a tank for those couple of days. Tanking tends to, the, first of all, it's it's not pleasant for them and they tend to expend energy in the tank, swimming around, trying to get out. They don't have any nutrients in the tank. They have access to each other in the tank, which depending upon the kind of seafood, you know, can lead to cannibalism. And I think in terms of a, you know, I mean, they're eventually gonna get eaten, but uh, until they do in terms of a cruelty kind of point of view, uh, 
you, if you, like if you put shrimp in a tank and like half of them eat the other half or parts of the other half, it's just it's just kind of an awful thing to to inflict. I think you know I think you should always minimize suffering as much as possible. You know when we do consume other animals, but uh, you know just even just strictly in terms of flavor, tanking is generally a, a very bad idea. Generally, there's a couple exceptions. There's some things that you can successfully tank, especially if you purchase certain kind of um, uh, like marine. Uh, like seawater simulation, you can you can buy um, like for for use in um, uh, saltwater aquariums. You can buy you know basically dry marine, dry dry seawater that you mix with uh, distilled water. The really good ones, uh, especially if they're for certain shellfish, like abalone, will contain nutrients that will you know like abalone is a great example. You put abalone in a tank, they become skinny and flavorless in like a day. It's, it's the worst thing you can do with abalone. But you could keep abalone in a tank that you're providing nutrients to for a week and they'll still be delicious. So yeah, tanking itself, more of what I'm referring to is on individual level, as these chefs, you know, we should patronize, you know, like I said, always of course control costs, but not to the point where we're not patronizing the, the vendors that are kind of on our side, if that makes sense, that are fighting the good fight, putting in the extra effort to bring really exceptional products. You know, the other stuff would be a lot more large scale. Um, the way seafood is handled in Japan, uh, the way it involves local governments, the way it involves cooperatives, the way, you know, the fishermen, the co-op, the local governments, and then the ultimate consumer, the hotels and restaurants, the way that all interacts is a very tight system in Japan. And none of those, none of those elements exist here. Uh, in the U.S. certainly. So part, part of that is just Japan historically having seafood be the basis of their protein. Fishermen being very respected members of society. And, you know, that that leads to just, you know, the social respect for for the craft and the social need to, you know, depend on, uh, you know, fish. So we'd be talking about would this eventually happen uh, in a place like California, for example, is to have, uh, say, a consortium of um, spiny lobster and uh, uh, spot prawn divers, for example. They have their spots, they know what they're doing, and they dive for and collect, you know, or uni as well. So, they, you know, we're talking about divers here. They collect things. And then there's a consortium that handles the paperwork of uh, consigning their catch to an auction. An auction would be run by, you know, LA County or Santa Barbara, city of Santa Barbara, or, you know, some local government, or it could be the state of California. The U.S. is such a big country, it's kind of hard to, you know, scale things. So it's got to be, I think, fairly local. And then you have wholesalers that are purchasing these things on those at, at auction. Those and then you know, as a chef or as a restaurant or whatever, you know, as as a consumer, you are um, placing orders with the wholesaler, and then that wholesaler is selling to to the chefs what they bought on auction, and the chefs are like, you know, I get me the best you can for twenty dollars a pound. Get me the best you can for forty dollars a pound. Get me the best you can for ten dollars a pound. And you know the wholesalers have the skill of navigating the auctions and you know storing and transporting. The consortium handles getting it from the uh, fishermen to the uh, auction floor, 
Uh, the auction could be virtual. Even doesn't even have to be. There doesn't need to be like a skiji. There could it could be virtual. It could be you know not centralized. The government, the local government, either state or or smaller, handles you know the rules of the auction. You know, enforcing regulations and things like that. That's how it works in Japan. I would say that's more in the future. If it could work out, I, I don't know. I don't. I've, I've never tried to navigate that kind of thing here in the U.S. As far as、uh, you might say, chefs generally don't, but some chefs do. The chef I work for in Kyoto created a system where I, I didn't benefit from this, but you know, I was too too early for it. But now you can go to Kyoto. You can get a visa to train in Kaiseki cuisine in Kyoto. Uh, for a year, and you can get paid a little bit too. And that exists because the the chef that I worked for was like, "Hey, this is really important. I want to share this with the world. It's too difficult right now. We should make it easier for people to come train the way they can with like tea ceremony and flower arranging, but they can't do it for kaiseki cuisine." And he talked to people in the foreign ministry and made it happen. So I, I don't know what it would take to get there, but in the meantime, I think what we can do is. Patronize the the vendors that we believe in, especially on the seafood side. Now, I think I think a lot of the work has already been done for farmers growing fruits and vegetables. I think seafood. I also think to some extent meats. It's still kind of nascent.、Um, there's not a lot of、uh, like individual people who are raising、uh, beef cattle, or raising chickens, eggs. It's still a little too industrial and large scale and cost cutting oriented. And I would pay ten dollars for a dozen eggs if I could get the kind of eggs I could get in Japan, which also costs ten dollars a dozen, by the way. You know, the very best eggs in Japan cost ten dollars a dozen. There's a farmer、uh, raising turkeys in Japan, mostly for the embassies, because it's not traditionally eaten in Japan. That turkey is amazing. You know, thirty dollars a kilogram, but it's better than any turkey I can get in the U.S. at any price. So. You know, I think there's. I think also on the meat side, there's still. You know, we could patronize those farmers that are raising things, but then, yeah, seafood even more so. So I think that's what we can kind of do in the short term. Yeah, because otherwise, you're taking on the、uh, industrial farming complex and economies of scale and big corporations and and all that stuff too as well. So, with the name change for the restaurant, is the format and everything going to stay the same? Kind of same menu format, same style, and everything. Yeah, yeah, same staff. The menu is probably going to be kind of a superset of the current menu. We've we've always wanted this was always supposed to be a multi-phase project, and we've been kind of held back on expansion by administrative things. And along with the name change, most of those administrative things are going to be solved. You know, we'll be able to just kind of operate normally now. I think. I think we're all really looking forward to that. It's going to take a couple months, but yeah, it'll be called Kiitsu. It'll change its name from Imar to Kiitsu. So this next question comes from previous guest on the podcast,、uh, Chef Justin Singer of Chapman's Eat Market here in Columbus, Ohio.、Uh, question he left behind: Would you consider yourself a craft person or an artist? That's a very good question. <laughs> I don't consider myself an artist in the sense of like Picasso or or even like Yo Yo Ma. Definitely not. And I I don't look at any. I shouldn't say I don't look at any chef. I'm sure there are plenty of chefs out there that are like that. Like they're really like on the fringe and avant garde. And I know like modern, a lot of modernist cuisine is kind of trying to free chefing from the, in some sense, from the utilitarian side, where you know you got to eat it. It has to taste good. It has to nourish you. On the other hand, you know the is the person who makes. Uh, some of the dishes that I use, the the men and women who make ceramics, the handmade ceramics that we often use in Japanese cuisine, 
Are they artists? Do you have to be making non-utilitarian objects to be considered an artist? Or can you bring art to something that you is intended to be used day to day? These are really difficult questions. I do think for me, my whole approach to cooking since before I even got started was a craftsmanship approach. I guess I see cuisine as being, I think it should push as many buttons as possible. So yeah, it should be beautiful. Yeah, it should taste great, but it also needs to nourish the body. It should extend your life and your happiness. Uh, it's one of the reasons I got into Japanese cuisine is because I, you know, I could put together a $300 meal, very luxurious that you could eat every single day. You know, you could come to that, you go to that kind of restaurant every day. And I think that's one of the features of Japanese cuisine. And it's kind of missing from most European uh, or even say Chinese high-end cuisine where it's not that great for you. Um, and it's something you really only want to do like once, once a month, <laughs> you know, some of this, you know, some of these meals are like 4,000 calories or more, a lot of fat, a lot of salt. And, you know, you don't have to go there with Japanese cuisine and still, you can still create a, a, a an aesthetic experience without having to go there. You know, I believe that a, a meal should nourish you know, the body completely should be satisfying in every way. I, I think that's more of a craftsperson approach uh, than it is an artistic approach. I, I guess I see the meal as part of the guest experience. And in that sense, you know, it's, it's not meant to be like a painting on the wall. It's more of like a garden that you walk through and sample. I guess I, you know, just semantically, I would say I, I think of it more as a craftsperson approach than an artistic quote unquote approach. That question kind of gets at what's the difference, you know, especially because there are people there who say that once art is utilitarian, it's not art anymore. I obviously don't agree with that. I'm not trying to say that because cooking is utilitarian, that makes it less of an art. Uh, I, I don't believe that at all. Um, but there are artists who do believe that. So it's, it's a really difficult question. <laughs> What's the question you want to leave behind for the next guest? All the guests are chefs. They're all related to the hospitality industry in, in some regards. So it's usually chefs or sommeliers, but could just be a restaurant owner. Sometimes you've had seafood purveyors, chocolatiers, things around kind of the hospitality industry, but still associated with. My question would be, do you believe that being a hospitality professional encourages a wider sense of social responsibility for you or... Is it unrelated to your sense of social responsibility? Next question comes from one of our listeners. Are you open to working with lab-grown fish in the future whenever that day comes and it's ready? Of course. If I got put on a, on a spaceship with like 30 people and sent to a different solar system to another habitable planet, and there was like 30 of us in this colony in a bubble and we're trying to like start farming and terraforming and stuff, I would still be a chef at heart. You know, I would, I would still be like, okay, I've got these elements here. How can I put them together to make our lives happier? Instead of just like, you know, eating Soylent Green, basically, what more can we bring to this? And I think that that drive it would exist no matter what the inputs are. And I think that different, there's some situations where, yeah, it's all got to be wild fish is appropriate. I think there's some situations where it's got to be, you know, you can use farmed, but where is appropriate. And I can certainly imagine a situation, like I just said, where, you know, you're using lab grown uh, proteins, you're still, you know, trying to make that as, 
uh, you know, like I said before, you're trying to push as many buttons as possible with with what you've got to work with. Absolutely. So last set of questions here, yeah, like 10 questions. You ask these to everybody who comes on the podcast. So a nice compare and contrast across all the episodes. Who would you say is the biggest influence on your cooking career thus far when you look back on it? There's, uh, there's probably five or 10 people that I wouldn't be here without, you know, from, from a career standpoint, you know, and I hate to pick one, but if I had to, it would have to be uh, Murata-san, chef of Kikanoi, because his, his desire to share the, the beauty of Japanese cuisine created sort of the fertile ground for me to even be there. You know, and, and, you know, several people enabled me to even be there. But if he hadn't had the, the power and the drive to, you know, want to do that, it, it just, it wouldn't have happened. I would have gone for like a few months and come back. Like I, it, it would have, it would, I wouldn't have had anything like the experience that I had. And then I, I think his aesthetic and his, his way of explaining things has formed kind of the backbone of my aesthetic as a chef. And, you know, that backbone has been augmented with limbs from other chefs, you know, other people that I've come across. And yeah, I mean, it, it would have to be, it would have to be Murata-san. What's one kitchen item that's not a knife that you can't live without? The best possible water filtration, you know, the best possible water system you can, you can get. Like water is so, so, so important and often overlooked. Uh, and in Japanese cuisine where, you know, the flavors tend to be more muted, you tend to be showing off more of the quality of your products, you can actually ruin that with the wrong water. Restaurant you'd recommend that isn't your own. So scenario I give is person gets uh, stuck at the LA uh, airport, you know, overnight, flight cancel, flight delay, whatever. They reach out to you. Hey, you know, we're stuck here. Where should we go? We, you guys are closed. You point them in this direction. Well, without a doubt, Shibumi. There's no other restaurant quite like that. Not just in the U.S., but even in Japan, really. And not because it's not authentic. It's very authentic. But just the particular approach that Chef David brings where he, he's using so much fermentation. He's, he just has his own aesthetic that, um, you know, he's born and raised in L.A. I mean, he, yeah, without, especially if they reach out to our restaurant, they're probably interested in having it like a Japanese meal. Yeah, without a doubt, Shibumi. Bucket list travel destination, bucket list restaurant. So any place that you haven't traveled to or visited that you still want to get to, any place that you haven't eaten at that you still want to dine at one day. I would really like to travel to, this would probably change every month or so. Uh, I've actually, I've never been anywhere in Africa, Northern or Sub-Saharan or any part. I guess I feel like, I don't know, anywhere in Africa would be fantastic. Uh, I guess lately I've just been kind of into how much of American cuisine depends on West African cuisine because of the triangle trade you know, as terrible as it was, would, would love to just take a little trip around, you know, like Nigeria, Mali, you know, wherever, I guess it's safe to go right now, but experience a lot of the cuisine and just kind of notice how things have been influencing each other. A bucket list restaurant. I like restaurants that are innovative in terms of cuisine, but also grounded in terms of how you eat it you know, that's still food, you know, it's in a sense or something historical or even rustic about it. Like it's not too, it's not too out there. I mean, I, I, I haven't been to, to Copenhagen and I would really love to try geranium. And I think they just got named world's best number one on the, on the 50 best uh, list. So yeah, but I think, I think if, if there were just literally one place, I think I would still rather go to, uh, I think it's called Asador Echeveri 
or Echeveria in uh, or near San Sebastian uh, in Basque country in Spain, uh, where it's just like it's mostly seafood and it's being grilled over open flame. And that's pretty much the whole restaurant. And and yet everyone I've ever talked to that's been there said it's maybe the best meal they've ever had. And neither people who've been who've been to places like Geranium, who've been to like all the really you know, ultra refined places. And so I, I think, I think if I really had to pick one, it would be, yeah, Echeveria. Craziest thing you've seen happen in a restaurant while you're working? When you're doing like sushi or any kind of counter work, you, you see some interesting stuff. So I guess the craziest thing I've seen was at a Japanese restaurant in New York City, having a guest have a, a bit of a, a, an emotional meltdown over not everyone around them speaking English and people around them speaking Japanese and saying things like, this is America, why can't everyone speak English? It's something I still think about all the time and it's still, I, I, I can't, I still can't wrap my head around it. And, and in a Japanese restaurant, I, I really don't get that. Yeah. Food or drink guilty pleasures or anything that you know, you know, candy, fast food, whatever that you know is not great for you, but you just can't help yourself. For a while there, I would have said uh, McDonald's is buttermilk chicken tenders, but they don't seem to sell those anymore. So what's kind of somewhat filled that void, although not quite as perfectly, is Popeye's spicy chicken sandwich. I heard a lot about how good it was and I went to try it. And yeah, it's maybe a shade too salty for me. But other than that, I think it's just about perfect. Favorite Instagram account you follow? Paddock Nautilus uh, 40. They are a very sophisticated diner in Japan and... A lot of the Japanese Instagrammers mostly go to sushi places, but Paddock Nautilus 40 does go to sushi places, goes to fantastic sushi places, but also goes to fantastic kaiseki, also goes to fantastic French grilled meats, Spanish, uh, Italian. Cuisine in Japan is pretty amazing, no matter once you're kind of paying a certain amount. Uh, I mean, even cheap food is great in Japan, but you know, you start paying like north of 150 a person, you're getting some amazing experiences. This Paddock Nautilus 40 account shares just a, a really broad range of those experiences and, and with great pictures. So yeah, definitely Paddock Nautilus 40, strongly recommended. Favorite dish, favorite thing you've ever cooked, created. So, you know, looking back through your career, you can kind of point to this dish, this moment is kind of the time that you realize, you know, you could definitely be a professional chef. I mean, I hope it's still to come. The dish that I think shows what I'm trying to do the best so far is um, uh, when I was in New York, I, speaking of, you know, individual purveyors that should be patronized, uh, uh, Stephanie, the, the diver in Santa Barbara, uh, I was getting her spiny lobsters, which were exceptional, and splitting them in half, making a broth from the heads minus the tomale taking the tomale and simmering it with sake, pureeing it, adding uh, a little Japanese mustard, and then adding white miso to the, the shell broth. And then at the counter, I had a, a Japanese hot pot and I would bring that shell broth mounted with miso, with white miso uh, to a simmer, uh, poach the, the cut in half tails, Take it out of the shell, serve it in the in the shell, you know, take it out of the shell, cut it into pieces because everyone's eating with chopsticks, serve it back in the shell. And then that sauce made from the tomale and Japanese mustard on the side and finely shredded um, yuzu peel and uh, white onion as a garnish. And uh, I think just taking, you know, a, a, a really fine American seafood product, which was that spiny lobster, applying a very Japanese 
you know, a thoroughly Japanese uh, set of techniques to it. And then even though white miso was actually uh, domestic, um, it was made in the United States, as was the sake that I was cooking with. And yet, I, I think it's a dish that you could go to like the best kapo restaurants in Kyoto or Osaka and find a very kind of similar dish in terms of the flavoring. But it wouldn't taste the same because I've I've had the spiny lobster from... So Mie Prefecture is where the most famous spiny lobsters in Japan. I think the best California spiny lobster is better than the best Mie Prefecture spiny lobster I've had. I, I think it's a really exceptional product when it's at its best. And to just kind of be able to show that in uh, you know a dish that just has a few ingredients really you know a little bit of performance i guess at the counter where you're you know actually cooking it in front of the guests too i think that's the kind of food i like to serve so that, that would be a, a good example of uh, where i think this is going i'm an anthony bourdain fan not everybody is uh, if you were for a moment episode seeing something about him that stands out to you the most if you weren't is there anybody who was kind of a tv culinary personality emerald a yin can cook Jacques Pepin, anybody like that who you kind of gravitated towards? Uh, I'm an Anthony Bourdain fan. Uh, actually, I think the thing that really impressed me the most, and I th I can't remember if it was in Kitchen Confidential or something else that he wrote that I might have read, where he described basically the best chef that you've never heard of, who actually was a chef uh, who worked near where I grew up. So I grew up in Virginia. And in DC, there's a chef named Jean-Louis Paladin, who was, you know, a, a French chef, of course. And just the way Anthony Bourdain described him, he's like, this guy would never be a celebrity. You've never heard of him, but he's the most amazingly skilled chef he's ever met. Like this guy could wipe the floor with, certainly with, with, with me, you know, Anthony Bourdain speaking like this guy, you know, like I, basically, you know, Anthony Bourdain's like, I'm not a real, real, like I'm a chef, but... I'm not a chef's chef. Paladin was a chef's chef. And just describing like how that is in detail. And uh, uh, I, I never met Paladin or, or, or worked for him or I don't think I even had any of his cuisine, but I felt like I kind of got to know the kind of chef he was through the way Anthony Bourdain described him. I remember just being really impressed with that. And, it, you know, I, I read that before I went to Japan. And I, I think maybe that passage kind of influenced me a bit as what kind of chef do you want to be? And I, I wanted to be good. No, I wanted to be technically good. <laughs> and uh, that's, that's one thing I've, I've kind of strived towards and then I keep working on is to be technically good. That's I'd, I'd rather be technically good than really anything else than famous than wealthy. Honestly, something I, maybe I shouldn't admit that, but just that pursuit of, of, technical ability is it's just very satisfying to me and it's something i admire and i just think the way anthony bourdain described it even though he himself wasn't that kind of chef that the way he respected it and appreciated it and used his platform to kind of say hey these are the real heroes i really uh, respect that where can people find you social media website reservations plug everything uh, a few months ago i changed my instagram handle from 88 tamashi which was meaningful personally and, and had to do with my relationship with chef murata to uh, Chef Derek Wilcox, which is a little bit easier <laughs> to remember. So, so that's probably the best way to, to find me. And I have been posting a whole lot this year. I think once Imari renames to Kiitsu and we can really get, get off and running in terms of, you know, progressing to the next phases we wanted to progress to, I'll be posting a lot more. So yeah, restaurants Imari, uh, soon to be renamed to Kiitsu. It's in... Uh, Santa Monica slash Brentwood neighborhood in LA. We actually haven't secured the domain yet. Uh, 
So uh, I can't give you a domain name. That's where you can find me online. And that's where you can find me working too. Restaurants open, dinner only? We're Tuesday through Saturday, dinner only for the time being. And then reservations, you guys open the book like first of month or whatever, or is it just kind of always open? Uh, right now it's always open. I, I think maybe we don't take reservations more than two months in advance, something like that. We are an open table. We do have a phone number that you can call. Uh, you know, a, a lot of restaurants don't do phones anymore, but uh, we do have a phone number that you can call. Again, appreciate you coming on and, and doing this. It's an awesome conversation. Me and my wife, we had an LA trip sketched out and then COVID happened. Uh, it was going to be in 2020 and it got ruined. So LA is is on our list um, just because neither of us have really been outside of passing through the airport and, and stuff like that. So, you know, there's a lot of good restaurants out there we want to spend some time with. I think that'll probably be 2023. Definitely be stopping in and, and making a reservation and checking out everything that you guys got going on there. I've been following you for a long time and, and just the way you kind of approach everything. And I can't encourage people enough to watch just the 15, 20 minute eater episode on YouTube, how you just approach everything. And, and in that episode and everything, it's fascinating. And, and sushi is one of my favorite things. And I know that's not all you, you do, obviously. LA is definitely on our list. I think 2023, we'll finally get to check that off and and we'll definitely be seeing you and stopping in and experiencing everything that you guys got going on. I got to tell you, Ray, that I, you know, I get asked a lot of questions. You know, I, I have, I do interviews sometimes and then almost every day at work, there's almost always a guest who, who wants to ask me, you know, like, how did you get into it? How did you get to Japan? You know, why did you come back? You know, I generally get asked the same questions all the time. Uh, and, and you've definitely asked me some questions I haven't heard before and have really made me kind of think and, you know, think more about, I think sometimes you, you just kind of go along and you do what you do, you know, you do some thinking about why you do things you do and, and what you want to do. But I, I think having insightful questions asked is a great way to kind of get better in some ways. So I feel like this has been a, a great interview in that sense. And I appreciate that. Anytime you need anything from us, feel free to reach out. Always an open invitation to come back on the podcast if you ever need or whenever. That's a, the standing thing we do for everybody that comes on. But we'll let you get back to it. Enjoy the weekend. Um, like I said, stay in touch. If you need anything from us, let us know. But otherwise, plan on seeing us sometime early next year. Take care. Good talking to you. Thank you. A big thanks again to Chef Derek for coming on the podcast, taking some time out of his mornings, two different mornings, essentially, to record this. It was a lot of fun, super knowledgeable, just super informative, too, as well, and hopefully super entertaining for everybody that's listened to this episode so far. So I uh, really appreciate it. I know he's a busy guy with uh, that restaurant doing some name changing and menu development and everything and, and whatnot. So, But it's awesome to see him have continued success wherever he goes, whether it's Japan, New York, obviously now in L.A. So can't wait to you know eventually get out to L.A. You know, that's definitely one of the places that I'm going to go. We're going to book a reservation way before we go, kind of build the trip around that. You know, he makes amazing food. Um, you know, I think he just uh, recently did like a private dinner thing and there were some pictures that came out on Instagram. Everything just looked amazing. It just looked like an amazing time, an amazing experience. So really looking forward to, to making it out to LA and not just for all the other restaurants too as well. I mean, there's a bunch of great restaurants out there. So, you know, having the kind of that first LA food trip, which is something that needs to, needs to happen that we need to do. So even with, uh, you know, navigating LA, I think can be a little 
I don't, I don't know, scary is the right word, but just uh, you kind of don't really understand it until you're in it, I feel, and how spread out everything is and how long it can take to get across town and stuff like that. So I think it's daunting uh, a little bit kind of with sometimes and booking travel and, and everything, but definitely want to do it uh, and get in a Derek's restaurant. It's going to be kind of main priority. So again, you can follow him on Instagram at Chef Derek Wilcox. Currently the restaurant count at MRE.LA, but like he mentioned, the name's changing, should be just changing the name on that account. So if you follow it, it shouldn't be any issues, but even if they wind up setting up a new account, they'll post on the Amari account what the new account name is so you can make that switch to as well. So just follow the Amari account essentially. And though either you won't have to do anything or you might have to follow one other account. Uh, you can follow us on uh, Instagram too as well at SpoonMob. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Mainly use the Instagram though. You can follow us on TikTok too. But again, everything kind of runs through the Instagram. Also check us out uh, the website SpoonMob.com. So we got contact information, profiles uh, for all the chefs, all the guests that we've had on the podcast, different food photos and everything too as well. We keep that updated. So I just did a big update um, because there's a lot of chefs that either restaurants close or they move somewhere else or they open something new. So that is all up to date once again. So make sure to check that out uh, if you're looking for contact information or want to see kind of what the food looks like firsthand. uh, If you don't feel like for some reason Instagram's giving you an accurate representation or whatever, check out the website. Make sure to subscribe and follow the podcast wherever you get your podcast from too as well. So we're on all of them essentially, but Apple, Spotify are the big ones. We release the stuff on YouTube a week later after it hits all the podcast platforms. Just make sure you follow, subscribe, continue to help spread the word. If you're a new listener, welcome. If you've been here a while, appreciate it. Uh, appreciate the continued support, continued listenership, people checking out the website and everything. Feel free to write in to questions, comments, feedback, anything. Spoonmob at yahoo.com or through the contact portal on the website. I've gotten a few messages from people recently. So shout out to, uh, I believe it was Tierra who actually went to the catbird seat for the first time uh, a couple weeks ago and had an amazing time and wrote us a really nice message too as well. So we always appreciate any feedback that we get from any of the listeners. Always thankful um, that people take some time to write out and we want to make sure we take some time to write you back. So we try and get back uh, as soon as we can with everybody. Thanks again, everybody for listening. One of my favorite episodes. So cool stuff on the way. Uh, More great episodes coming. Appreciate everybody. And we'll talk to you guys next week.